Oh, I'm recording. Hey, this is Chet. Welcome to another episode of the Dark Art Society. Welcome to another episode of the Dark Art Society podcast. I think this is episode 171. I gotta check to see if that's true. Uh, well, I took a week off of the podcast last week. That was good. Yes, this is episode 171. I needed that. I needed that break. I got a lot of stuff done for Dystopia, which you can see on my personal Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Chetzar, one word. And um, even for a dollar a month, you can see all the Dystopia paintings I finished. So that was exciting. Other than that, <clears throat> I don't know what else. Uh, that's the only thing going on here. I got some tool posters uh, that came in, so I got to do those this week. They never end. But the important news is today I interview Ryan K. Peterson. Well, actually, I already interviewed him. And today I am posting it. Today I'm recording the intro and posting it. Ryan is a good friend of mine from back in, I met him, I think it was 93, at Alterian Studios. We worked together on a movie called Warriors of Virtue, which I forgot about and he had to remind me of. Um, and then we worked at Rick Baker's shop. And Ryan is just, you know, I'm going to use the G word again. I got to because he's a genius. He is. He's one of the best sculptors I know. He's one of the best sculptors in the industry. Uh, his design sense is incredible. His technique is impeccable. I mean, I can't say enough good things about this guy. He's really one of my favorite sculptors in the world. He's really amazing. Um, so... I'm excited to have him on the podcast. We had a really good talk and there was so much excellent chat about the, the movies he's worked on <clears throat> um, that towards the end, I asked him if he would uh, do a part two next week. So and rather than cut, cut him short, because there's so much we didn't even get to, um, we're going to do a two-parter. So this is part one of the Ryan K. Peterson interview, and it's a really good one. So I'm excited to share that with you because, like I said, I'm such a fan of his. Uh, yeah, cannot overstate how great he is. Anyway, okay, let's get on with um, the uh, new subscribers for the Patreon, which is patreon.com slash darkartsociety. Okay, where did it go? I just pulled it up. Okay, here we go. All right, so let me... I think I left off on Adam McCarthy for new subscriber. Uh, <clears throat> hmm. Okay. David Armantrout. He raised his monthly pledge. Thank you, David. Uh, we've got a new subscriber, Lowbrow Bear. Thank you. Marstov. Thank you. James Groman. Thank you. Arend Smith. Thank you. 
Hey, Ryan K. Peterson joined. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, deleted, deleted. Uh, and Adam O. with a nice big um, pledge. Thank you, Adam O. and everybody who supports the podcast. We appreciate it. And that's why the podcast is still going. From you folks. Um, I don't know if there's anything else going on in my life to talk about, really. I'm just trying, you know, this is my year of finishing dystopia, finishing my commissions, and that's what I'm working on. This is the year. Please let it be the year. I have to finish everything this year. But I am making progress, big progress. Oh, I know a good thing. I got uh, my website's coming. My new website is coming. So that is being built um, as we speak or as you listen, as I speak. Okay, obviously I'm running out of things to say, so there's no point in going on. Let's get on with this excellent interview with my good friend, the amazing, the genius, Ryan K. Peterson. Hope you guys like it. All righty. Enjoy. Hey, Ryan. How's it going? Good, good. Hey, Chet. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast. You've, oh, you're welcome. We've been longtime friends. My honor. You're one of my old friends from the industry that I'm still friends with, and uh, I've had you on the list for a long time, actually, since I first was wanted to uh, start interviewing artists oh. on here. So, Oh, that's very cool. Very yeah, cool. your stuff's amazing. Amazing, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will uh -huh. talk you up on the intro, so I won't embarrass you here, But because um, I, re I record the intro before or after the interview. Um, I'll tell everybody how great and amazing you are, but uh -huh. I, I <laughs> you know what? One thing I learned from you is the, the torch technique, like running the, the butane torch oh, yeah. across sculpture mm -hmm. to get it really smooth and like glass. Like mm -hmm. I remember seeing you do that going, what the hell is he doing when we were working at Rick's on men in black too? I think it was. Well, that's right. Yeah. Um, I learned that from Alec Gillis. Oh, ADI. really? Yeah. Um, there were some spiders that I sculpted in the movie Jumanji, mm -hmm. and I was sculpting the legs, and, he's, and Alec came over and just said, you know, have you ever tried using a torch? And I, no, and, and did it, and it worked great. Yeah. So, yeah, and I actually hadn't used it much at Rick's until uh, Men in Black 2, and that's, I think, when you saw me doing that. That little banky creature that Binky was you and you and Binky were kind of doing I, I think so yeah yeah but it's great it's great for smoothing clay and uh and Chavant uh takes that technique very well right but um not uh monument clay I, I, I haven't I haven't tried I, that yet it's it's a uh, I tried doing it and it melts the clay at, at a uh, depending on the depth, different layers. So it'll melt underneath it, and oh, then the weird. surface will start to, to, to slide off. Oh, that's and not good. Like, oh, no, can't do this. <laughs> Shoot. So it only works, you know, well, I think, uh, particularly where, well with uh, 
NSP medium. Yeah, it works. I've I've done it on uh, Monster Clay. It, it's you have to be really careful, but you know, I've I've done it on Monster Clay. I've never used Monster Clay. You but haven't? Think, no. And who? What you were talking to someone on one of the podcasts where it melted within the mold. <laughs> yeah, that was and, Steve, and like, Steve Wang. Yeah, the creature. Yeah, yeah. He did a creature from the Black Lagoon. That's he sculpted right. all those <laughs> all those scales. And and it melted in the mold and messed the whole mold up. But it's like if when, when you if you're doing something, I'm actually about to. I've got a, some frame corner commissions I just got, so I'm gonna take uh, a frame corner that I already made that I know fits this frame, and I'm gonna do a clay pour with monster clay because monster clay is the best thing for clay pours because it's it gets as thin as at a low t- it has a low melting point. It gets like candle wax like that thin oh wow and so you yeah. pour it in but then it's like uh it's like a waxier chavant so Ooh. it's it's like it's not as sticky as chavant but you should try it i, I will you know it's really yeah. it's really great especially for yeah. clay pours you can't really beat it okay just don't leave it out in the sun yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you got you you uh you know uh you yeah, I, I'm. <laughs> I could just go on and on about. I'm such a huge fan of, of your work. I mean, you're oh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, Back I, at you. <laughs> thank you, but you know, you're you're a whole other level. Um, I, I first saw your work. The work. Let me see. I think I first saw your stuff on the Devil's Advocate. Was it the Devil's Advocate that you did that stuff at Rick's, or was it? Or am, I, am I getting the movie wrong? No, it was Devil's Advocate, but we had actually worked together prior to that at Alterian. Do you remember that? Doing what? Uh, Warriors of Virtue. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that, you was, did... that was a couple months of work. Did you and do Yee? you, uh, Dave Smith, uh, Hiroshi, and right. uh, Lilo. Yeah, Lilo. Yeah. 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 Oh, my yeah. God. So I forgot we... about that. So that's where we met. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Um, you did which which kangaroo did you do? I remember it was like Yi or Yun or I can't remember. He was stockier. Yeah, yeah. Have, the actor didn't have quite as long of a neck, but uh, yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. But that it was, was that was it was a good time. I mean, an, it was it was. Um, <laughs> uh, but well, the the work that I, I when I saw that the Devil's Advocate stuff is when I was mm. like, oh my god, you know. I probably, I probably hired you at Rick's, or at uh, not at Rick's at at Tony's at Altarian. Like you I'm interviewed sh- me. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you did. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> no, I, uh, uh, I I I don't remember your portfolio, but obviously I thought you were you know amazing back then. But seeing your stuff on Devil's Advocate when I, when I went to Rick's. I remember when mm. I first got there, I saw the stuff you did for Devil's Advocate. And I just couldn't believe it. It's still some of my favorite demon designs I've ever oh. seen on anything. And none of it, hardly anything got shown in the movie, unfortunately. No, but it's no. so, it was, you know, you know that that's like some of my favorite stuff that you did. It's so oh, disturbing and weird. Some of the weirdest still holds up, you know. Yeah, I... That's still probably one of my favorite projects. It must have been so fun. <laughs> because, because 
Bill Sturgeon, I think he, I think I was the first person, at least the designer, to work on that movie. So he handed me a script, and I'm not a good script reader, or at least I wasn't back then. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've first been introduced to scripts, the yeah. format's very strange. It's funky. Yeah, you got to get used to it. And so I remember thinking, oh, this is kind of just an average story. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't too impressed, but I think it was more my inability to read scripts. Right. But there were demon stuff in it. <laughs> and I thought, this could be fun. Yeah. And so Bill said, go ahead and, and do some stuff at home after hours, because I, I think this was during, I think we were finishing either Men in Black or we were finishing up Mighty Joe Young. I know, I think we were, it was Mighty Joe Young. Uh, I was doing stuff for that as well mm -hmm. during the day. So I went home and I did some uh, designs, but this is what I, I wanted to kind of describe to you about uh, working on those demon designs. Um, I, I had a very specific plan that I had worked out um, because I, I kind of felt the, the weight of let's do something fresh and new. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, wasn't quite sure how to do it. So I, I made kind of a little Bible and of, of guidelines. Okay, I don't want it to, to look like anything that's been done before. Nothing too much like Steve Johnson's work, which I love, but mm. it's like we can't have anything resemble that. Right. Uh, nothing like a Botine style stuff. Or, um, so I think I had a list of demon movies that have been done. Said, let's, let's avoid that. Yeah, no big long horns of, and red no, devils. No, nothing <laughs> typical, you know, yeah. archetypal. Uh, and so I thought, okay, those are, that's what I want to avoid. And when I first moved out to Los Angeles, you know, of course, you remember Hennessy and Angles down in Santa Monica? Do you remember that bookstore? No. It's on 3rd Street Promenade? No, no. Well, so this was like in um, 95 or 94 when I moved out there. And, and when I was working at ADI, Alec Gillis said, oh, you know, have you ever been to Santa Monica? you got to go down to the checkout the 3rd Street Promenade because I was new to the area. Right. So I went down there and I found Hennessy and Engels. And they had such a wonderful assortment of um, and categories of books. And one of the books was called uh, that I found that I absolutely loved and it was the first one I ever bought there it was called The Mummies of Guanajuato. Oh Have yeah. You heard of this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yes. And so they were very creepy. Oh and uh, grimaced uh, distorted uh, mummies and and in black and white high chiaroscuro uh, uh, photographs. Mm -hmm. uh, there's I thought there's um, power to these. Right. So it's like if I can incorporate that a little bit, but then maybe change the material. So rather than these kind of um, opaque, mummified, leathery skin, what if they were like uh, translucent, like silicone or like gel uh, gelatin or, or jello heads, mm -hmm. a uh, uh, fetus heads or something? Oh, that would be a nice contrast. <laughs> so that, that was part of uh, the little Bible. I was, uh, I was forming for myself, and then I thought, okay, how can I, because one of the reoccurring things that I always talk about with people is how much I love originality. Yeah. And, and, and how hard it is to, to achieve originality. Yeah. And sometimes I felt like I've done it, and other times I haven't, and it's, it's a very fragile kind of 
journey to try to achieve originality. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, what usually gets in the way when you're trying to design a creature, or design or do anything originally? And it thought, well, references and thinking. So I thought, how do I create these designs without letting my thinking, which inevitably goes to the references I talked to earlier, Steve Johnson, Robertson, whatever, mm-hmm. keep this somewhat fresh. So I did these at home after hours, like Bill said I could. So I decided to sculpt maquettes really fast in 20 minutes. Wow. So a little head bust and sculpt, but, but Chet, these were really rough and right. crude. Like, okay, really quick. And I had a light above them, so it was really heavy lighting. It's like, okay, uh, gouge in little holes for the eyes, uh, quickly put in some cheekbones. And I didn't even bother to um, smooth out the clay to, to as it was building up. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was trying to just respond. It's like, okay, that's cool. I like that cheek. Okay, don't think about it too much. Okay, yeah. now put a nose on. Oh, that's a pointed nose. Ooh, that's kind of cool. Okay, move on. <laughs> and then by, by after 20 minutes... Okay, that's enough. Hmm. It's like, I think I like this. So then, because it, it was a 20 minutes of not thinking, but just reacting. Right. And it's like, okay, at least intellectually, I don't think my mind was engaged. Other right. than I was just responding emphatically. You're doing it too quickly for your mind to overanalyze. Yes, yes. And so I thought, okay, now what? Then I, I thought, I'm going to draw them. And so... I, there's a technique. Well, when I went to college, I went to the University of Utah and got my fine arts degree. And, but I went through the painting and drawing department, and one of my instructors taught us a technique of uh, pastel, uh, darkening paper with pastels, and then lifting off the highlights with a rubber eraser. Hmm. Yeah, that's so right. I, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah. So I thought, okay, I'm going to apply that technique to this. So let, let's... In, in the, with the idea being that it would validate the crude, rough stage that I had just done with those clay maquettes. Mm. So I took two hours or so or longer and did some really nice uh, pastel drawings of each one of these maquettes that I did. And I, I ultimately did about two or three of them. Mm-hmm. And then once that was there, I went, okay, this is kind of interesting. Because what it did is it, it kind of buffed out some of the roughness. Right. Of, of just the application of the clay, but yeah, yet retain some of that um, that quality. Right, right. So you were you were using these maquettes as your ref, rep drawing reference, basically. Yeah. Right? So you can kind of like not put in all the rough marks if you didn't want to. You know, you yeah. just kind of smooth the. Because the key was just to do it quick without thinking. Right. And now I could draw it, and I could get back, and I could think, and then I could focus right. on it. It's like, smart. oh, okay. <clears throat> Smart. So then I took I took these drawings to uh, Bill and he liked them, and and then I think I moved over to the new building on San Fernando Rick's new building. They were mm-hmm. just constructing it, but there was a room that room design room just off of the front desks, just behind the front desks, mm-hmm. as you under the lobby. Mm-hmm. So I was in there and and I think Eddie it was just Eddie and I at first Eddie Yang. Mm-hmm. So I sculpted them. So I, I kind of it was kind of a continuation of I sculpted now I sculpted the drawings. Oh, cool! And instead of instead of doing um, that's great, uh, two man. hour sketches, I I did two and a half to three day sculpts, right. little maquettes. And so in a way, it, and then that kind of solidified the prior stage. Right. So all the while, it's like 
a fragile beginning of trying to do something subconsciously and just reacting to then allowing myself to ease into the process of, of that we're familiar with. Right. You know? That's so uh, smart and such a, an unusual way of doing things for, especially for, for uh, creature design, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. Like I've never, it, never thought of that. That's a great idea. It was effective. And, yeah. And, and it, so, yeah, the proof is in the work. And then we just, yeah. uh, you know, I did all the maquettes and Eddie was working on his maquettes. And then I, after I, uh, uh, finished these little sculpts, then I, I would paint them quickly with acrylics and Bill Sturgeon would take them and take photographs and Rick and show them to Rick and Rick would take them to meetings and stuff, the photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was particularly fun is, and, and it's in my portfolio or my Instagram pages, I absolutely love taking those little maquettes that I'd finished and lighting them. And that's where you see the series of photographs where they're kind of like a group shot. Right. And it's so cool. And, stuff. Yeah. and, and so that was the, the, the coda to that whole process. It was so satisfying. Right. Unfortunately, uh, and in a way I can kind of see if you watch devil's advocate, you really didn't need to have long, big, um, sequences with these demons yeah but it could have been a little bit more <laughs> i agree, I agree. <laughs> just a little bit more like a second more i, I mean, would have liked to have seen a little more but right. they, they they actually cut entire sequences with them out right and then so what rick did is he would extrapolate from from the designs that eddie and i had done and i think and then i think they brought in dave smith and steve wang and they did some designs and and Rick kind of was he, he that's he would extrapolate from all of us. Mm-hmm. So nothing that nothing specific that I did in those maquettes made it entirely into the movie or through the design process. Or like elements maybe. But the elements and mm-hmm. the flavors. So Rick Rick was, was uh, yeah respectful of all that, but he created something cool in Photoshop with all of them. So so yeah, that's how that's how that was done. That's amazing. Yeah, you know that was was that before Warriors of Virtue. I was after. Okay, okay, right. Yeah, so you I know what? And, until afterwards. Right. Okay. I know what. Um, um, I know what I remember seeing from your portfolio. Now that was like, oh my god, we have to hire this guy. It was that mask you did. <laughs> oh I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the one you just gave me the little sculpture yeah, of. Yeah, because yeah, that thing was just like. So still, still, it's like still one of the coolest monster designs i've ever seen of course we're gonna have to put all these in the in the patreon uh post when when we post this episode so people can see what we're talking about uh but yeah it's just you know before we get too much into this let me let me get the kind of like i don't know the the general stuff out of the way so we can start talking more about this fun tech stuff um okay i just want to yeah like like okay i'm assuming you were a monster kid Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, it's almost like you don't even know. I, I check all the boxes. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> and uh, and 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 obviously you're like you know super a super nice guy. You're not this like weird weirdo mean aggressive person like you know satanic worshiping dude. And uh, so okay, you're a monster kid just by nature. Um, were you an artist since you were a little kid? Mm-hmm. Drawings. Okay. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I drew dinosaurs. It always started with dinosaurs. And then, of course, we all loved um, 
Godzilla, Harryhausen, mm-hmm. and then once we became aware of the Universal Monsters, I, although you and I are a little bit young. Oh, I got that. But, speak for you. Yeah, but, no, no, uh, I got that stuff. I got that stuff uh, when they, you know, on TV, when they would just have them like Saturday afternoon yeah, horror yeah. things. So I, they were definitely a part of my, my uh, childhood. And the Aurora, yeah. the Aurora Monster Model kits were also where I got the, the Universal Monsters. I wish I had one of those. I I would have loved it. Oh my God, you would have died. Never had access to it. (laughs) Really? My uncle had one. He had a Frankenstein, and and I and it was just it was wonderful. But I I don't think they were available in the stores. I didn't know how to get them. Hmm. But uh, but as far as the classics, you know, I I remember having a a puzzle box that had I had three different little cylindrical box uh, uh, containers with puzzle pieces. One was the Wolfman, one was Dracula, and one was Frankenstein, and I loved them, and I would just stare at those boxes all the time. <laughs> but shortly thereafter, other things started to seize my imagination. Um, uh, Bigfoot uh, in search of, mm-hmm. and, and, and Rick Baker's King Kong in 1976, because mm-hmm. I was six years old when that came out, and then I kind of became obsessed with that. I had I had the poster, that classic poster in my bedroom. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, Chet, and I don't know about you, growing up in, in it was in San Pedro, right? Where yeah. you grew up? San Pedro. If you're Pedro, if you're, did if, you? you're, if you're local you say it, you pronounce it wrong. No way, I heard you <laughs> pronounce it Pedro. No, I never pronounce oh, it. I'm no wrong. one oh, Pedro. That's, that's the funny thing is that, you know, it's kind of like uh, Pedro's kind of a um, you know, it's kind of rednecky. It's like a, oh. it's very, it's very working class, blue collar. Yeah. And everybody, everybody calls it San Pedro in San Pedro. You can tell if it's someone from out of town because they pronounce it properly, which is Pedro. Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's where I grew up. Well, did you have friends? Did you have people that um, read, collected Fangorias or famous monsters? Or were you kind of alone in that regard? Oh yeah, no, it was. I was pretty much the only one. I think maybe That's, there was one yeah. one other kid. I had like one or two friends that were kind of into that, but I was the only one with the subscription to Famous Monsters, you yeah. know, <laughs> and and yeah. uh, subscription to Fangoria. Yeah, so, same here. Yeah, yeah. So, so again, uh, you know, we're like a. Monster kids are kind of like we're just born scattershot across the bowl. Yeah, the globe, it's so weird. You know? And and <laughs> we share these things and and. I remember early on that uh, because I started collecting Fangoria, that there was a disconnect to myself and others. So, you know, we we got those magazines because it connected to us. Right. You know, we were responding more to the art and the imagination. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, my parents were were good. My mom first questioned me after I bought my first Fangoria. She's, <laughs> She said, Ryan, I don't know if we want you to read those magazines anymore. Because, <laughs> you know, because they're horrific. I, I think uh, even though the first issue wasn't that bad, it was the Dragon Slayer one. Right. They had a picture of, of, of the dragon on the cover, but it had um, photos of some early howling images that were scary. Well, anyway. Yeah. Bless my mom and dad's heart. They, they quickly realized that I, I was responding to it it was important to me mm-hmm. so i continued but i when my relatives or my aunts or something would see it they didn't understand because i was always a nice kid but they didn't understand why i i was attracted to these things and i remember one time 
it was on a camping trip, and we were moving things out of the back of our station wagon. My aunt was there, and she saw some blood coming out of the cooler from fish that was recently caught. Mm-hmm. And she goes, and I was, I was only like 10 or 11. She goes, oh, I bet you like that. And I was like, <laughs> no. I, well, I didn't say it. I was like, yeah. okay. But in actuality, I, I've always been squeamish. I don't know about you, but I, I, can't, I don't like blood. Right. And I know I've heard Rick Baker say this, yeah. and it's, it's so true. And so I, I remember going perplexed, going, she doesn't get it. Yeah. And it's like, and I don't know how I can ever communicate that. Right. And I still don't know if people really get it. And that, hence, what's the beauty of your podcast is you're you're letting people who are willing come in and try to understand something that's that's very interesting. Yeah, it's still. I mean, I still think this fascination with dark imagery and monsters and stuff like this is really worthy of like a real study like a psychological study or something because it's absolutely because it's it's real for sure it's a thing for sure and you know you know sometimes it seems like uh, kids who have it's a way for people to cope kids to cope with trauma and externalize it and master it It, like in my case on the other hand there are other people i know that didn't have childhood trauma that were just into it and 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 the and the other thing is like as much as I that that's true for me, it's also true that I I feel like it's just part of who I am before really before any of that stuff happened to me when I was a kid. It was yeah. like I was always interested in weird stuff, you know. Yeah. So yeah. so it just seems like it's it's really an interesting thing that hopefully someday someday somebody's going to do some kind of study on it and we'll get some maybe well, some answers. I think your podcast is already providing. Some yeah, we're doing it's a big, a, a big uh, 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 scientific experiment. Yeah. <laughs> so, but okay, you were you were were you born in Utah? You're from Utah. Yes. Yes. So I was. So um, this is all happening in Utah, which is probably even harder to get Fangoria in oh, Utah. I imagine. Oh, totally. So I was I was born in Salt Lake City. And when I was two years old, we moved to a town called Paradise, which is up in the northern part of Utah. Mm -hmm. And it's a very rural town. Mm -hmm. So I think we only had like 500, maybe 600 people. And and we had surrounded by fields and cows, a lot of dirt (laughs) roads. We had a barn. We never had any uh, uh, like uh, uh, cows or anything. But the neighbors would often let, my dad would let the neighbors who did own cows let them graze within our fields that we had. Oh, how cool. And so I grew up loving cows because they're so, they were so inquisitive and gentle. I know, they're beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. And, but there was another element to rural uh, Utah that I, that it's, it's such a strong kind of um, culture in a way mm-hmm. that I felt particularly out of place. Right. Um, I didn't hunt or do anything like that. Um, right. I had allergies, so even though my family and I, we'd, we'd go camping a lot, I never really went out into the woods too much. I remember my dad, this story, he, he took me down into these river bottoms that were just a half mile from our house to fish. And I, he, he's talked to me uh, since about it, but he, was, he knew right away that it wasn't my scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was fishing, and he was catching fish, and he looked over, and I was... I was over in a little riverbed crying because the, 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 the water was so cold and I was being attacked by ants and bugs. 
and was <laughs> having a miserable time. And he had to stop what he was doing and take me out. And I, and I realized the elements don't quite, I don't respond well within the elements. I've right. had allergies, bugs, <laughs> asthma. So it's like, okay, I'm in this rural place and I can't even really do that well. Right. And I think in addition to just being born liking uh, monsters and dinosaurs, all, all that stuff. It was a form of escape. I mm-hmm. needed, my imagination needed to go there. So I always like to envision, okay, dinosaurs in the environment rather than right. just traditional deer that people would hunt and kill. Right. So my mind is always going elsewhere. Well, put, n- so- not not only th- there's that, there's also the outsider feeling, which is what, you know, Frankenstein, All the so many of the monsters are have this underlying um outsider thing you know where they don't fit they're the yeah. they're you feel sorry for them you know frankenstein is kind of the perfect example they're they're um uh outside of the mainstream and everybody's after him and nobody understands him yeah. he's actually like an okay guy he's yeah. just misunderstood you know yeah <laughs> so i'm so, sure that's of course of we can relate to that yeah, yeah right yeah and so uh so yeah growing up in that town um, I did have friends. I was I played a lot of sports, so that was the one thing. Oh, really? I was able to bond with mm-hmm. people around the area, so that was good. That was probably. Um, I I've got an interesting little story about being an artist and sports and whatnot. Mm. But um, I remember in high school, we in right after gym class, I was getting dressed, and a guy next to me was getting dressed, and. Another guy, kind of stocky, a little bit intimidating, came over and started berating the guy next to me. It's like, why did you do that? Why did you kick the basketball? And then started pushing him up against the locker. Classic, you know, kind of bullying scene mm. that you would see in movies. And I was like, oh, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. And the guy was going, I didn't mean to. And he was getting all upset. And the guy kept pushing him. And I was like, ah, boy, I'm glad I'm not that kid. <laughs> uh, and it was really unsettling. But anyway... That that guy, the muscular guy who picked on the kid, I had a little room that my art teacher would let me sculpt and do my artwork in outside of the rest of the class because I was so into it. Mm. And that kid, <laughs> I'll just call him the bully, <laughs> came in to my little room and I was like, oh no, <laughs> what is he want? <laughs> is he going to start pushing me around? Did I do something? I wasn't aware of it. Instead... He was showing me reverence and respect wow. because I was working on the sculpture in there. That was, you know, it was, it's in my Instagram. It was, it's called mid transformation. And it was, it was really influenced by the, the thing, oh. you know, the bifurcated Norwegian head. That's so cool. Rob team sculpted the classic. So I had my little variation in that and he was like digging it. And so wow. I was like, wow, it's good to be an artist. Yeah. <laughs> and, Cause I, you know, I can. I'm, it inoculates me from a lot of bullies. You know, yeah. once they know you have talent. Yeah. And also, with sports, I was pretty good athlete, so that also allowed me to have some um, get along and and not be bullied. So that was a nice uh, combination that allowed me to survive high school. Right. <laughs> there so, was, and then, yeah. There, there, there's. Uh, that's. I found that true as well. Um, and except for the bullies that were jealous oh. that you were doing that. And then they would use that as a, as a, as a reason to, 
go after you, you know, or just mess you up. Because it's like you could tell they're they're envious that you had this talent they didn't have. Oh, you know, I experienced that a couple times. But oh. but but overall, it was definitely a way more positive experience. It was a way of um, have you know building your identity and and uh, yeah, you know, and be, feeling like you could do something that other other people couldn't do, and and yeah, you know, it's like a sense of self esteem. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I'm sh- I know that people I know a lot of people in different parts of the country. Um, you know, I know people that were called, you know, their parents were telling them they were possessed by the devil and, you know, oh, you yeah. know, so that's got to be rough. I'm so we're, we're lucky that we didn't and grow up in that situation. We are, we are, and I and I did have friends that were always. They'd come over and they'd always like to read my Fangoria's and stuff because they couldn't access them. <laughs> Their parents wouldn't let them, so it's like, well, I'm, I'm yeah, come here anytime. Here's a new one, and so yeah, you're right. It, it we were lucky. Our parents allowed us seriously to do man. that. So yeah, very much. Um, were, were you? Then a... I... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no no! I was just gonna say that that's high school, and then yeah, I, yeah. I, I did move down to Salt Lake City to go to college at the okay. University of Utah. So that's that's where I studied fine art there. Okay, and um, yeah, you 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 are one of the few that has a, an art degree. That's it's yeah, pretty amazing. Yeah. I I remember one time we were this was at uh, Spectral Motion. We were talking about this was back when I first started showing artwork, and we were talking about art. And, uh-huh. and I was like, you know, I was just going off on on conceptual art or something or just just <laughs> ranting like, you know, you know, how I can get sometimes. But I was like, I, you know, I don't like art that you have to have a degree to understand. And you're like, well, I do have a degree <laughs> or I do have <laughs> an I? art degree. <laughs> I mean, you were kind of saying, you know, I do have an art degree and I still like this kind of work that more representation oh. stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, uh before we get to that, how, um, were you before we get into your college years? Were you when did you get into makeup? Interested in effects oh. stuff? Was that mm. like in high school, or was that after college, or in college, or? Um, I, I I always loved makeup, of course, because you know, growing up, idolizing the greats: Rick Baker, Rob Bottin, Dick Smith, mm-hmm. Tom Sweeney, all of them. Um, but I, I never, I only dabbled in makeup. It was really hard to get materials. You'd have to go to Salt Lake City to get some stuff, and, right. and I was two hours away, right. so I really didn't have access to any, any of the materials. But I loved makeup effects. You know, of course, we were obsessed. I was obsessed with it. I'm sure you were too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Was, and <laughs> and uh, so, but I would satisfy that uh, yearning to um, to create some of those images and to do that stuff just through clay. So, hmm. so you were sculpting I, I, pretty early. I, yeah. So I, I remember after seeing the howling, my parents took me to that and I was like, 10. <laughs> and, uh, that was the one for me too. Oh, that was, that was, was one such... of the, one of the big ones where I was like, I got Okay. I gotta, I gotta learn how to do this. Yes. It just completely inspired well, me. Well, my friend, a friend of mine who was on my soccer team, uh, he had seen it before I had, and so his mom and his stepdad took him to go see the Howling, 
And I remember him calling me up and describing over the phone the movie <laughs> and the werewolf transformation. And I remember just going, how, how is this possible? I wasn't quite aware of makeup effects. I knew of Rick Baker, but it was just, I was just on the cusp of having that whole world explode. Right. And it, my reality. Well, had they even, like, they hadn't even done anything like that at that point, a transformation no. like that? I don't think. And so I was like, well, it must have been stop motion or something. <laughs> so finally, I, I remember uh, going to see the movie and um, seeing that sequence. And it was so unprecedented. It, it plays with your, your mind a little bit. It's yeah. Like, it's just astounding. I'm seeing something very special. You could hear the kind. You could kind of feel it in the room. People were, oh, you know, you could just feel it. Your sense you're seeing something really innovative and groundbreaking. Right. And then I had to know how he, they did it. Right. And so of course, uh, Fangoria's would provide some information, and then uh, you, you start to piece things together. And I found out about bladders because all the air bladders, because Dick Smith, Altered States came out around that time right. as well. Yeah, that was a, that was another great uh, one. And so what I do is I try to solve these problems just in clay. Hmm. So I remember I remember sculpting a like an Eddie Quist head or something and and attaching straws. I'd tape long straws. They were the tubing, <laughs> and I put them up in clay. And then I'd flatten out a little piece of. Uh, it was it was Crayola colored clay, so I you know they had like four different colors, and I'd mix a clay flesh color, <laughs> and then I would flatten a little piece out, put it on top of the hole that the tube went up into the head, just basically what a changeo head would be, and then I would I would work it out that way. So blowing the tubes and the and the little cheekbones would expand. Or the oh forehead. wow, that's crazy. So I was doing all this stuff not animatronically, but engineering it just with clay. That's amazing. And I remember one time I built a werewolf, and I thought, okay, let's let's try to animate the mouth. How would I do that? So, I got some uh, hair clippers, you know, that are about three inches long that you could use to tie back your hair. Uh huh. It has a little uh, handle at the end where you squeeze, and it opens up the hair clippers. Right. So I'll use that for the mouth. So I stuck it in the back, built the uh, werewolf uh, uh, snout on top of that, and then I I did my little tubes and bladder thing. And so I got it to where, when it was fully activated, I could open up the mouth. I think I even used two of those little hair clips, one to open up to make it snarl and one to open up the mouth. Whoa, and then, whoa. Was blowing, <laughs> then was blowing so blowing into it, and so it was like a change head, but it was all in clay. How the, that's crazy. Wow. Amazing. But I never graduated beyond that. I never felt like I wanted to learn you know, animatronics or me mechanics. I, I felt like it was too far removed mm -hmm. from what I wanted to do. Right. So, of course, I was obsessed with all that stuff and, and so makeup effects and everything. So I never really did any kind of appliance work until college. Okay. I, then I actually took a makeup class. Oh. And, they had classes we, for effects? They had, a, they had like a stage makeup? makeup. Yeah. And gotcha. then one of, the, one of the, the things would be to, we could do foam latex uh, appliances. Wow. That's when I started doing it. But I was thinking about this stuff all the time and and didn't like do my first makeup appliance until college. I didn't do my first mask until college. So I was really kind of late to the scene. Right. Experientially, but I was always thinking about it. So That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I have memories of my first foam latex, the smell of 
casting your first oh, oh. foam rubber piece. It's like all that stuff is just I have such great feelings about it. It's so I have such nostalgia for those, you know, when you when you do it right and you get your first foam piece and it peels out and nothing's there's not like any you know, steam bubbles or anything. <laughs> yes. Chad, I stand you I stand corrected for a minute. It wasn't the the class, but I remember getting Tom Savini's Bizarro. Oh yeah, yeah. That was had, a big one for me too. It was huge because it had a little recipe for R and D yep. foam latex. Yep. And I did actually get some materials. I think when I was around seventeen, mm-hmm. and and did a did a like a my first plate mold. It was really bad, and and did a <laughs> did a Beauty and the Beast kind of based on Rick's Beauty and the Beast makeup on wow. Ron Perlman. But it wasn't successful. It came out, but the, the edges were too thick. So right. I just kind of used it as just a, a mask. Right. But you're right. Nothing beat the excitement oh of God. actually seeing foam latex. Mine was super dense. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> it didn't matter, though, yeah. because it, we did it. Yeah. You know, we actually went through the process. And it was magic. It was just magic. Oh, yeah. I, I, rem- it, I, I remember doing a... a, a, a Remember, do you know moulage, which was before oh, alginate? Yeah, that. It yes. was like you'd heat. Yeah, you could melt it. Yeah, yeah. you melt it, heat it up, and then you do. Uh, uh, for people who don't know, it's like alginate. It's like dental impression material that you could do face molds of your own face and your fingers. I remember, I was probably twelve years old. I got some moulage. I, I don't know where I got it from. Trias Sciences or something, which is that place that had all that stuff. And I molded my finger. And I didn't know any better, so I had this moulage mold of my finger, and I mixed up some foam latex, and I put it in the moulage, <laughs> and it actually gelled, and Good. and yeah. I never baked it, because I didn't know you had to bake it or anything, and it gelled, and yeah. I pulled it out, and it was like a perfect cast, and then I like poked the ends, and I stuck a chicken bone in the end of the finger, and then, oh. and it eventually just like cured on its own, just from sitting really? there for so long. But it shrunk like hell. But it was a really good little finger with a chicken bone sticking out of it. That's so cool. <laughs> so that's interesting because you hear about people sculpting in foam latex, like Rick Baker did on Octoman. Yeah, right. So it never does collapse. It, it keeps it didn't its structural coll- it, integrity. It, it was yeah. It was super dense. It was like way. It was almost like solid rubber. You know, it was just wow. just a little bit of foam, so it couldn't. I don't think it could collapse. <laughs> That's so cool. I have that thing around here somewhere. I need to find it. <laughs> um, okay, so so what was your what was your college experience like? I mean, what were you what were you were you planning on being like a fine artist, or what was your or were you just mm. planning to learn about art, or what was the deal there? Um, I. I, I got a scholarship to the University of Utah, mm-hmm. and my intention was, okay, just become a better artist so I can become a better makeup effects artist. Oh, so you, at that point, you were you wanted to get into the effects industry? Yeah, that's okay. all I wanted to really do. Okay. Um, so my intention was to go through the sculpting department, get a degree in sculpting, and mm. then and then move out to Los Angeles once I graduated. Oh, so you had like a smart plan and everything. Like you really, I don't know how smart it was. (laughs) It it was just, uh, my dad, it was just, yeah, I just, I just assumed that I was going to go to college and learn more. You know, I didn't, Oh, I know. Well, cause you know, coming from Utah, a lot of, um, uh, my Mormon friends are going off on missions. Cause once you turn, um, 
19, mm-hmm. the, the young men could go out on missions. So a lot of my friends were gone. And I thought, well, uh, they're having a really interesting life experience. So maybe going away, moving away from home and going to college could be an equivalent. Right. And, it, and it wasn't. You know, they, theirs were, they had to learn languages and learn new cultures. But it was still a big deal for a kid growing up in a rural 600 oh, town to Salt Lake City. Yeah, and, Salt Lake City is like the big city, you know. Uh, for Utah, for yeah. For Utah, or especially compared yeah. to what you, where you grew up. I'm sure it was like a huge yeah. change. Yeah. So, and, and I loved it immediately. So, but, so my first year in college, it's called the foundation year. And that's where all the foundation art students take a series of foundational classes that teach you the basics. And I thought, okay, this is great. And I, and I was preparing myself to kind of go through the, uh, the sculpting pipeline. And then their sculpting department fell apart. The, yeah. They 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 lost a couple instructors, and it was just kind of in limbo. And I was like, oh. What a bummer. I was like, well, I'll just become a painting and drawing major. Okay. And it was probably a blessing yeah, because uh, I had great instructors. Um, and art principles are pretty much art principles. They're applicable to sculpting, mm-hmm. music, um, um, anything, anything creative life right <laughs> and and so i i just simply was i was able to kind of merge into this different department fairly well and uh, that's where i learned certain techniques like using oils and the graphite and the pastels what i did on devil's advocate and so it, it turned out really well but again i always wanted to get into makeup effects so i was kind of that was always at the forefront of my mind, but just being in that environment, a seed was planted, a fine art seed. Right. Let me tell you when this happened, when it first happened. This was, I'll never forget this. One of the foundation classes that we all had to take was called Art Seminar. So it consisted of one of the professors would, would talk to 100 students by showing slides of, fine, uh, of artwork. He would comment on it, mm-hmm. critique, and it was kind of it was for us to start to develop a language of communication. This is artwork from classic artists, kind of all the way, uh, classic, uh, uh, contemporary. Okay, because we we had to take three uh, art seminar classes with different instructors throughout that first year, mm-hmm. and so they covered the bases. Sometimes they would cover their own artwork, which is particularly interesting and mind blowing. Yeah. But I remember one slide, watching it, because you, 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 you start to process this stuff subconsciously because you're being exposed to a lot of information. Right. And I remember seeing one slide of a sculpture, and it was just, it was bizarre. Had some, it had a male genitalia sticking out of a square box, but then it had the artist's portrait on top of it. <laughs> so he had sculpted a, a, a square rectangle box, uh, with his head on top, but his penis was sticking out <laughs> the bottom. And I remember going, I remember not laughing. Some people laugh going, I think I get it. It was like some, I had an aesthetic response. Huh. And, it was, and now what I call this response, I call it the whisper. And it's, it's the art gods. It's the muse. It's, right. 
It's, it's something communicating on another level and subconsciously maybe mm-hmm. to, to the artist going, this, there's something important here. Right. This, is, this, is, this isn't a common way of communication. You just got exposed to something that's communicating itself aesthetically in a different way right. you're going to be if you're going to take this here you need to develop a different ear to be able to receive this whisper right and i was like I, and, I was, and it's a fragile thing chet and i oh, know yeah. you've experienced it it's like i don't know if i heard that whisper again and and then you kind of you forget what he kind of knew what that sensation was but but the nice thing about art school is you you're constantly surrounded by the artwork and the professors, so you don't lose touch of that. It'll, mm-hmm. That whisper will keep con- communicating, uh, helping you to develop um, the art mind. Right. And how to express yourself. Mm-hmm. What I was responding to was an artist expressing himself right. in that slide. And it wasn't, it was kind of irrational. It, it's like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Right. It, someone would go, that doesn't make sense. That's dumb. But I wasn't feeling that. Right. This is this. There's something important here, you know. Right. This, this, and, and so I, for no other reason, going to school for me, and it's not this way for everyone, but uh, for me, surprisingly, going to school planted a seed on how to keep up a relationship with that muse, that mm. whisper, wow. despite my need. To want to get into makeup effects right. so this thing's growing in me simultaneously all the while i was consuming fangorias and movies and being obsessed and wanting to get out there so and and also uh college professors uh they they've honed the language they can communicate art principles to you it's like if you get in trouble you don't know what's wrong with your painting they'll come in and say oh well you need to focus on uh, some balance here or right. this composition needs work stuff that I think a lot of guys know innately mm-hmm. Rick knows all this stuff innately you obviously know this innately um, but but in fine in in school they just simply told you they were teaching you the vocabulary right which right. sometimes be pretentious you know especially when you go to galleries and you see people trying to sell artwork to someone coming in it starts to sound pretentious mm-hmm. but i know when you have a professor who actually can walk the walk then it has some weight to it right and they are helping you problem solve your way through your developing your ability to express yourself mm-hmm. like that slide of that sculptor's work he was expressing himself, and something about it was effective because it communicated to me. Right. So you did and, learn another language, just yeah. like your friends. You're like you're taught. You're yes. saying, "Well, I didn't really, I, you know." I did. You're <laughs> so right. You, just I did. Le- you learned the art language, <laughs> and I think I value that over anything else. Right. So. <laughs> and, and and so it, you know, I. I, I really grew to respect my my instructors and um and uh yeah so it turned out to be a rather wonderful experience and i know that's not always the case it all depends really really on the quality of your professor some professors kind of like you could tell they weren't quite taking it as serious or their ego was larger than was constructive as an instructor right i mean it seems like about you know it seems like a 50 50 thing from talking to so many artists that went to school. It's like, 
you know, half of them are really thought it was terrible, and yeah. yeah. And then there's like a damn. You hear that? I do. It's yeah. crazy. Something going on with helicopters. Um, it seems like you know half really enjoyed it, half kind of didn't enjoy it. And I really do think it comes down to the teachers themselves. I mean, really, I do too. You know. I you know how it is, and we've all experienced a good teacher and a bad teacher in, reg- in regular school, you know. Yeah, It makes exactly. all the difference. It does. I, I, I remember I had a really inexperienced geometry teacher in high school, ninth grade, and I couldn't grasp the, the material. Right. Yep. And I was an average I – was, I wasn't bad at math up until that point, and I just – a downward spiral from that point right. on. I, I didn't have the discipline. I didn't care about it. Right. She didn't. She didn't nurture a passion for it, and I, I became terrible at math. Right. You know, in my yep. in my uh, SATs and and all this testing I had to do to get into college, I always did worse in math, and yep. I was embarrassed, ashamed about it. Right. But but I think you and I, and this is something they never really taught. I don't know if they taught this to you. I know they didn't teach it to me growing up, but the difference between right brain and left brain people. Oh yeah, right. And, yeah, and, no, and that, so that was you know. Our curriculum was based was rat was kind of designed around more left brain. For sure, yeah. People, yeah, yeah. So I always felt like I was there was something may, maybe inferior about my my intellect or my mm-hmm. abilities, and and. Now I realize, no, I was just right-brained. All my strengths just weren't really being acknowledged. Right, right. Only in art class, but uh, and and so yeah. So um, so okay, you uh, what okay uh okay so college, great experience. You learn the art language. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and then what? And then did you did you go straight from uh, college to L.A. and get in the business? And how did you get in the oh, business well, and all that? Or, or what happened? Well, something very cool happened on my in my sophomore year of college, or at the end of my freshman year. They were filming Halloween 5 up in a portion <laughs> of Salt Lake City. It's called The Avenues. Uh-huh. It's kind of on a, slow, a, 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 a hilly neighborhood just to the north of downtown Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. It's called The Avenues. And my apartment wasn't too far. And I remember someone telling me, hey, they're filming a movie or something up there. And so I got all excited. And so I got on my bike. I only had a bike to go to travel around. So I went up there. And it was Halloween 5. <laughs> and I was like, this is so cool. And then I, I looked around for the makeup trailer. Found it. Knocked on the door. Oh, my God. You were able to just get K&B. on the set? Oh, K&B was doing the effects. No way. And so... The guy that was in the trailer at the time was Mark Matry. Do you ever remember? Did you ever work with Mark Matry? No, I, I've heard his name, you know, as long as I've been in the business, but I never, I don't think I've ever worked with him. I, or I'm not sure if I've even met him, but I know the name. Yeah, well, he opened the door. I think he seemed surprised that, you know, someone would knock. And was <laughs> this happened later, too, with Bill Corso on the stand. But anyway, oh, wow. they filmed the stand. They filmed some scenes up in the avenues, too. But anyway, back to Halloween 5. He let me in. He showed me some of the heads they were, work- they were working on. And he looked at some of my little portfolio. I came back the other day, and I showed him my portfolio. Greg Nicotero was there, and he came in and looked at it. And they were so nice. They were so huh. gracious. They looked through it. They, and Greg said something that was 
that I really appreciate at the time. He says, you should move to L.A. Wow. And I'd hire, I'd hire you. And I was like, oh. And, <laughs> and, and it gave me such a burst of confidence. And I said, well, yeah, I'll definitely keep in touch. I need to graduate. I need to con- see this college thing through. But it, but it, it kind of, I always had that in the back of my mind as I was going through school. It's like, I think I can do this. Greg right. Nicotero gave me the confidence to do this. Yeah. And then in my senior year, well, I, I, it took me five years. I, I, I wasn't too quick at graduating. But in, on my fifth year of college, they, they, uh, a friend of mine, a roommate of mine says, oh, we were up in the avenues and we saw, we saw that they're filming up there. It was just a repeat of my Halloween 5 experience. So, I, oh, let's go up and see what it is. I think it's the stand because we heard about the stand coming. And as we were driving up there, this big guy, lanky guy, walked across the road, kind of like the Patterson footage, Bigfoot. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was Stephen King. No I was way. like, oh, this, that's Stephen King. and This is great. So I hopped out. And my friends, I think they went back because they, I can't remember, but I was left alone and I, I, I got to look for the makeup trailer again. I'm so surprised. You know what? I got to interject real quickly. Oh, yeah. It's, it's funny that you, you're such a shy person, you know, and I was the same way. But when it came to doing stuff like that, you somehow, you know, you're so into it that you would do it anyway. Yeah. Go against yeah. everything in your, in your, uh. Your own yeah. shy instincts of shyness, you know, <laughs> just do it. Because we had, we had passion. Yeah, That's yeah. That's the beauty of having passion. Right. It gives you a little bit of gumption. It shows, it shows how much that passion you otherwise have. don't have. Right, know? right. Anyway. And so I knocked on the door because I could see, actually see Bill Corso in one of the windows. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> so I knocked on the door. Bill Corso opened it. He was the only one in there at the time. And he seemed surprised that I knew who he was. Wow. And, and I said, you're Bill Corso. And, and it's like yeah how do you know and he brought me in talked to me and 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 i was able to work on the stand well that where they because uh, they filmed in utah and colorado but mainly in utah for like half a year wow and it was so cool so i got to experience the stand up until when i was about to graduate from college but what did you what did you do what did you work on it what'd you do uh so and this is another cool thing. I worked at a little coffee st- coffee shop down in the mall downtown Salt Lake. And I would see cast and crew members coming down because they would stay in the Marriott that was connected to the downtown mall. Mm-hmm. So I saw Mick Garris. I saw Steve Johnson, all these people walking around. <laughs> wow. A little intimidated. But, yeah. but anyway, I Bill remembered me because I gave him my number. and But he actually, I think, gave the number to uh, Joel Harlow. So Joe Harlow called me and left an answer, uh, a message on my machine saying, hey, Bill told me it. we saw your stuff, and, and uh, would you like to come and help out? And I was able to help out uh, moving some of the dead bodies around and just being there helping with basic makeup stuff. Um, Ashley cool. Peterson was like the department, basic makeup department head. Mm-hmm. I helped her out with stuff. Oh, but cool. I got to hang out on set. Yeah. That is what, that's what was so cool. And so, and, and then I met Steve Johnson and he, I showed him my portfolio, of course. And, uh, and he said, yeah, you need to, you do need to move out to Los Angeles. I don't tell this to too many people, but you do need to move out to Los Angeles. And wow. I was like, so I met, you know, of course, Steve Johnson, Joel Harlow, Bill Corso and Dave Dupuy. So that was the crew. Oh, wow. And they were really cool, very accommodating let you know i got to got paid to to work on set for for a little while i can't remember how long it was but it was a really nice uh, precursor 
to actually moving out to Los Angeles. So I had to develop my portfolio because I graduated during helping out on the stand and I had the summer was ahead of me and I thought, okay, I'm just going to work on my portfolio, make sure it's as good as it can possibly be. And I'm going to send, I, the, the plan was I'm going to send it to Rick Baker, of course, Rob Botin, Stan Winston, ADI and Gordon Smith, because, uh, I actually was really influenced by Jacob's ladder. Yeah, I bet me too. probably worked. Jacob's ladder blew me away because yeah. that's where I first realized Gordon Smith was coming from a different direction. Yeah. That's why all those demon design look so interesting and original. And mm-hmm. I mean, he was inspired of course by Francis Bacon and Joe Peter Whitkin and stuff. But, yeah. but, but just those inspirations were something I hadn't seen before. Right. And, and, and so I, I, w- I was really impressed with Gordon Smith. And so I, I sent to all of them at, during the fall and was ready just to, to take whichever one was willing to hire me, assuming that would be the best case scenario. I, I kind of wasn't sure I'd even was going to go out there. Right. But ADI called and Tom, Alec Gillis left a message on my machine and just said, hey, we got a job. We liked your portfolio. If you can come out, you can work on Mortal Kombat. There's a character called Goro. Oh, you that's did Goro? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So that, that so that's so how, cool. <laughs> that's how it transitioned from college into makeup effects. So Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so you just you moved down? And yep. did you have a place I, to I, stay? I mean, what was... I, I had... I, I didn't have long. They needed me in about two weeks. And that, so I just drove out there, stayed at the St. George Motor Inn in Tarzana, <laughs> and just stayed there for five weeks. I think I worked on Mortal Kombat for five weeks. It was really cool. And in that time, I found a, a an apartment in uh, Van Nuys, Sherman Oaks area. It was by the old Sherman Oaks Galleria mm. on, on uh, Vineland. Yeah. Yeah. No, not Vineland. Sepulveda Mm -hmm. and so I had an apartment loved the Mortal Kombat experience got to work with Tom Flouts on Goro's legs and then Norma Cabrera and Greg Smith were working on Goro's torso and arms and so I was kind of and eventually I moved on various parts of Goro Alec did the head and it was so cool seeing that come together Um, I think it wasn't completely done I once I realized I found the apartment, they let me go back to Utah and move out of my my studio apartment. Mm-hmm. And then, then I made it official. Moved moved into that that uh, Sepulveda apartment and finished out uh, Mortal Kombat and uh, moved on to Jumanji. Wow, so, Jumanji was for ADI. Yeah, yeah, wow. and uh, <clears throat> Jim Cagle got to work with Jim, and that was exciting because Jim worked on Prophecy. Oh my God! And and so it's like <laughs> he told me a lot of great stories prof, with prophecy. I I don't know how. If, did you see prophecy when it came out in the movie? Theaters? I remember it. Yeah, yeah. I don't I I don't remember. I know I saw it, but I remember. I mostly remember the commercial and that kid getting yeah. hit hit in the sleeping bag, getting hit against a tree. Yeah. <laughs> that freaked me out. <laughs> well. Prophecy was worse than the howling. So I was nine. I saw so I saw prophecy before the howling, mm-hmm. and it scarred me. It scarred me. Really? I, I, it really did. It was the one time where 
that scene you're talking about where the boy, the, the family, the campers get attacked by the bear, the mutant bear. And it ends with that kid getting, like you said, smashed against the rocks and the sleeping bag. Right. I remember when that scene was done, my arms were frozen to my seat. <laughs> and I remember going, I don't think I can move my arms. Oh and my I looked God. at him. Wow. And I was going, I think I'm frozen stiff. <laughs> and I kind of worried. I thought, I think damage has been done. Oh, my God. And and I cont- and I oh no and I I still have what the movie's only halfway through <laughs> I don't think I can handle this Wow I've never heard and, that, heard and, of that before That's like that's, uh, that's and amazing it, it, it really really scared me I had I couldn't sleep that night I didn't dare move I was I was like a mummy in my bed just sweating <laughs> Yeah And I shared I shared my room with my sister and I and I and this is horrible and after, and I couldn't be in a room alone for two months wow. And eventually I started overcoming it and that sounds traumatic but you know again it gets back to what we were talking about it stimulated my imagination yeah yeah and tom berman's effects were were so convincing to me and so yeah back to jumanji it was it was an honor to be able to work with jim cagle and talk to him about all this stuff and he'd tell me stories how you know he he sculpted the little baby uh, uh, the mutant bear babies you know that they found Mm -hmm. halfway through the movie Mm mm-hmm said he had a foam latex one and you would let his son's little baby infant son sleep with that at night <laughs> <laughs> it was this teddy bear and he got to worry well maybe this isn't a good thing try to pull it away and his son would grab it uh, and suck hilarious. his thumb and it was his it was a little teddy bear but um <laughs> so yeah that's that's a uh, 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 mortal Kombat and jumanji was uh fantastic i mean alec tom and alec hiring me out of utah changed my life wow it was it was a big dramatic shift and it was it was wonderful it was it it was still when you know priests i mean jurassic park had come out but if you remember in 94 95 a lot of stuff was still being done practically oh yeah and yeah. so it was the tail end of the of the industry that mm-hmm. magical period we were still sculpting in roma plastilina right oh you know? and uh, so yeah and, and ADI, all the great artists there, Andy Schoenberg, and um, yeah, it was, you know, just sculpting with Norbert Cabrera and Greg Smith and Tom Flouts and Mortal Kombat was such a learning experience. I and they, So just seeing their tools that they used, and I would go and buy them. Mm-hmm. Rakes, never used rakes before. Wow. So using that, that was, a, that was um, an epiphany. Like, this is amazing. This is what I've been looking for all my life. Right. So, I know. Rakes are... I, I, I love telling people about rakes for the first time. People that are sculptors. They're like, oh, my God. Once you try a rake, it's like, oh, that's what I've been missing. <laughs> so uh, exactly. what were you doing? What did you do after that? I, I, I want to get to your Rob Bottin years. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but, but you know, tell me what you did. You know, just kind of keep, <clears throat> keep keep going through the films you worked well, on. Well, well, Greg Smith, during... um. Jumanji, because Greg worked with Jim and I and uh, uh, on the crocodile. There's a big 15-foot crocodile. And and so did, um, oh, I forgot his name. He's, he's a really talented makeup artist, and he helped out. I'll remember it. He works for K&B a lot right now. Um, but uh, Greg Smith was saying he, had, he's, he was doing some work for uh, Henry Alvarez. Mm. And I go, oh, that's interesting. And so I thought, and and he gave me Henry's number, and I said, "Well, I kind of want it. That'd be fun to do a sculpture for Henry, because he, Henry was commissioning artists to do small little 
like a, almost like collectible stuff. Yeah, because Hen- Henry was like a wax museum guy, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So for, for the listeners, Henry Alvarez was Rob Bottin's main sculptor for many right. years. And so but he had his own I shop that did like wax. Down in, yeah, down in Long Beach. Right. And so I called Henry and he invited me out to the shop. So I drove down to Long Beach, went in, talked to Henry. And Henry was such a, a positive, passionate guy. He loved sculpting. So he's very enthusiastic, very supportive. You didn't really sense any ego in him. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, oh, I love your stuff. Yeah, how about if I, you could do the Scarecrow? Would you like to do that? And he's, <laughs> and he's just, yeah, you know, he's just really into it. And so I started doing this piece for Henry. And Henry connected me to Fernando Favila at Rob Botin's shop. Right. So... I got a call from Fernando to come and hey, this was, this was right conveniently. This was right after, uh, there was some time off after Jumanji, mm-hmm. so I, I wasn't working at ADI. I had a break, so I thought, well, I got a call from Fernando. So he invited me out there. So I drove out for this initial meeting. I didn't meet Rob at this initial meeting, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I did meet. Moto Hara, wow, Linda Frobos, oh. and Fernando. And Fernando. Mm-hmm. So Fernando took me into this little room, very modest room with like almost like a card, a card playing table, card table. Really? <laughs> and he looked at my portfolio, and he was very thorough. He, uh, so I always appreciated about Fernando. He, he examined everything. And in this little room, there was. There was the um, Venetian blind head from Total Recall, you know, that it splits open and reveals Arnold underneath right. the disguise. And so I was looking at, but there was not, not much else than that. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And then the, I felt like the interview went well. Moto, I, you know, I went out, the sh- he took me through the shop real brief before I, I exited to go back to my car and return to my apartment. Moto was working on this large body cast of an, of an actor. I'm like, well, that's weird. He, he had it. He, it was vertically situated. And I didn't, I don't even think I met Moto at that time, but I was, that's the first time I was exposed to him. Mm-hmm. And Linda was working. I, I, Fernando didn't introduce me to, I think, the sculptors themselves. I mean, he just, just took me through. Right. Went, well, they're, in, they're working on something interesting. So went back, felt like it went well, but I didn't have any commitment so I was like, okay, well, maybe they'll hire me. Maybe they won't. It was still cool to see that. Right. Um, and then I did get a call from Fernando saying, oh, Rob would like to meet you. Hmm. So I drove out again for what I, uh, you know, a second meeting. I hope this goes well. Drove out. I remember it was raining terribly at the time, and which was unusual for Los Angeles. Right. It was a scary. I thought, oh, if I can just make it to the shop, I'll be... <laughs> really grateful to be alive made it there went back into that small office room with the cardboard table or not cardboard but the card table mm-hmm. and something new was in the room and it was a post it was like a poster board with some photographs stuck to it about 50 of them and it was the, the sloth victim of seven. Oh wow and it was it, it was these Polaroids were documenting his degradation over a year's time of being uh, 
uh, incapacitated and fed drugs. Right. Like in, that's, that was the victim in Seven. That was one of the Seven Deadly Slins, Sloth. So that's what right. that character represented. And these, these black and white photos had such power to them. They looked like Joe Peter Whitkin type stuff. I was right. like, this is cool. And Fernando, what is this project you're working on? And it was just, again, it was just me and Fernando, but I could see Rob in the shop. There was a window, and I could see Rob talking to Moto out there, and I was like, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> I would have been so intimidated. <laughs> but, but I was like, wow, these cool images, and Rob's right out there. And, and he says, yeah, this is David Fincher's next movie. <clears throat> and I remember really getting excited, even though a lot of people didn't like Alien 3, which is David Fincher's first film. Mm-hmm. It left an impact on me, not so much for the story, but because of his direction, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Didn't I? Couldn't you? Didn't you feel oh, yeah. that he was a talented director? Oh yeah, it was visual, <clears> visually <throat> amazing. I thought if this is his follow-up, this could be something really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And then Fernando says, "Hey, do you want to meet Rob?" And and so he went out and got Rob, and Rob came, started working his way, and opens the door, enters the room. Big. He he, he had a big smile on his face tall had his hair in a ponytail came in and sat next to me and looked through my portfolio real quick and and i had sent him one of my little packet portfolios you know mm. when i was in youth. so they had that and he says yeah i, I really like this mask that you referenced said, oh that 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 old mask yeah because that was the centerpiece of my portfolio right and and so he says one of the important things if you're going to work for me is that you need to be nice. I only hire nice people. I want people to get along. And I appreciated that. I went, well, that's cool. And, and he says, yeah, well, welcome aboard. Wow. <laughs> so I was hired. And then so Amazing. Rob, I think he shook my hand, went back out into the shop. And Fernando says, hey, do you want to see something? And there was a door right behind Fernando. And he says, yeah, come check this out. And I think they only do that once you become part of the team. And so he opened up the door, and it was a little maybe 15 by 15 foot room. But Chad, it was so amazing. It was full of all of these unused designs and sculptures of legend, of Robocop, of all of Rob's movies. Wow. Unused sculptures from legend that were just, they were all like these weird pixie contorted faces. A full wax bust of um, the Norwegian head from the thing, a, a darkness bust, everything in this <laughs> little room. And it was like you're entering Rob's imagination. Wow. And it was overwhelming. And, and, Ro- and Moto and I subs- subsequently talked about this. And Moto said when he first went into that room, he said, it blew me away. I, 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 it was some of the best sculpting I've ever seen. And, and in a way, he was right. I mean, Rick's is like the pinnacle of sculpting. But what was evident in that room was the surreality and originality oh, of yeah. Rob Bottin. He was, he and, was he, always my favorite. That was the one place I wanted to work more, oh, than, more than any other shop. But I never got there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, it's, there's a caveat to working for. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've heard, but, uh, I've heard, <laughs> but every, everyone should have, you know, when our field had been given the opportunity, should have at least experienced it. Yeah. You would have loved it. You would have fit right in. He would have loved your stuff. Wow. And, and so 
from that point on, I got to work on seven. And we were, I, I, my first um, job was to work on the, um, let's see, no, the sloth victim, the, the gluttony victim. Right. The large, the large guy that Moto initially was, was working on with the plaster cast. And so my job and Linda Frobos and, and, and shortly thereafter David Smith is that we, when they took a, a body cast of this guy, everything just kind of flattened out. Mm. His, his girth just flattened like a pancake. Right. So, for, so from above, he, he, looked, he looked obesely, you know, um, grossly obese. But from the from a three quarter, which was what the scene was ultimately going to film, it just flattened out, and you didn't get a sense of this guy's size. So it's probably the weight of the material, the alginate and the bandage, just kind of pushed it down, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so our job was we were to elevate him mm-hmm. about four inches, and then resculpt the bottom half of his body to match to 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 make him look bigger. Right. And so I worked on his right side. Linda Frobos was working on, I think, the head, torso, and Dave Smith came out and he was working on the gluttony victim's left side. And pure luck, what you see in the movie is the right side. Oh wow! And so, and we spent like, oh, Chet, we we spent, we spent like six weeks just. That's building on those forms. That's what I've heard. I mean, that was always the rumor about Rob's, uh, aside from. Or the, uh, I mean, people always said it as a negative, but I always thought it sounded like, sounds great to me. Like Rob would just push you to keep going and Mm. sculptors got to spend a ton of time on, on perfecting the sculpture. And, but there was a lot of like all nighters and overtime and, and, you know, from what I heard, but, um, I always thought, man, spending that much time on a sculpture sounds amazing to me. That's what I, I didn't like having to rush through things. You know, I always yeah, wanted to, exactly. to just completely keep going on it, you know? So that sounded great yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and real quick, that mask that you referenced that was in my portfolio was totally con- the way I sculpted it. Cause it took a long time. It was totally conducive to Rob's process. I didn't know about rakes. And when I was working, you didn't. On rigs, you did that without a rake. Yeah, so <laughs> oh I just God. used the the loop tool and just refine my forms. And that's was that was Henry's technique, right? So I fit right into that technique. Right. And, so instead and, of using a, just for people who are listening, instead of using a rake, which is a as a tool that is basically like a rake that kind of evens out a surface, um, smooths out any weird little uh, surface bumps, I guess. You the 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 Henry technique that you're talking about that you kind of figured out on your own is to take a loop tool, a smooth loop tool, and basically do a tiny little mm-hmm. loop, doing the rakes almost individually in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, right? Is that a yeah. good way to and, describe and it? And you just you just keep working it, and you can start to gradually refine the forms. And what happens is a surface kind of chatter starts to happen. Right. Right. And and and. And it reads as te- skin texture on film. So if, uh, they they actually uh, brought out some of the Robocop appliances. Mm-hmm. That has all that surface texture on film. It doesn't. You don't really it's, read what it. What a trip, yeah. I know, and that's what was so weird. But but that mask. Get, getting back to that mask real quick. Chet, I worked on that mask for like 
10 months, mm-hmm. I indulged myself on it. I would, I would work it, think about it, think about it as, as I was riding my bike to the coffee shop to go to work, think about it on my way back, what forms, primary forms, oh, are they were looking good? Do they look good on top of the, the, do the secondary forms look good on top of the primary form, et cetera. Right. So going to Rob's, it was a perfect fit because he did the same thing. He, he didn't worry about rushing the piece. In fact, if there's one criticism of Rob's process, is that it was, it was too heavy on the sculpting and design and the subsequent uh, stages of molding and painting an application usually got rushed. Yeah, interesting. And so, so that that gluttony victim, yeah, we just just worked it and worked it and worked it. But he he did have Dave Smith and I do something really interesting, and this kind of shows the ingenuity of Rob. You know, as you know, when you when when clay blends off onto a plaster cast, it's really important that you match the texture, or it's going to be really evident when you painted or cast it up in a material, you're going to see that line right. unless you really take the time to match the texture that it's blending into. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if he, maybe you've heard of someone doing this, but I hadn't. In order to check that blend, he would have Dave Smith and I take alginate, quick alginate casts. I heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of where the clay meets the plaster to, to check the blend. Right. So we take an alginate cast, you know, pour quick uh, uh, pottery plaster in there that's set quick and check. And it was amazing. You would think that you matched it, but then you look at that plaster, quick plaster cast, and it's like, no. <laughs> now, it, it still has a lot of work to do. So right. weeks were spent just matching the blending edge. Wow. And, and then one interesting little aside I was responsible for the gen- the, the, the gluttony victim's penis. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, all right. But it didn't make sense because, you know, if you gain a lot of weight, that kind of tends to get buried <laughs> within the, fo- the folds right. and the, the weight. But Dave Fincher said he wanted it to be really big. <laughs> he wanted women while watching the movie to think to themselves, oh, fat guys. <laughs> so that was, became, an, a, you know, something attractive. Um, so I, I would sculpt. This was, a, this was a particularly odd moment working for Rob. I sculpted about three different penises of different sizes and <laughs> different configurations. And, and I remember... Rob and I going in the room and matching and sticking them on the the body that had already been cast. So we had already finished the body, and we were this penis was going to be a an appliance that we stuck on it, okay. as well as suture, the autopsy suture, and, then, mm-hmm. and they were both going to be cast in gelatin. And so, you know, it was just funny seeing Rob grab each one of these penises, stick them on, and go, oh, circumcised, uncircumcised, oh, <laughs> and it's just going, no, nah, let's settle on this one. So that was uh, that was a particularly interesting moment on seven. But, um, <laughs> wow! Then seven was was wonderful. Yeah, and 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 you kind of had the idea, not that why would I, but I had the idea that I'm working on something special. Mm-hmm. You could just feel it in the air. Right. It's like Brad Pitt's in it. Brad Pitt was just coming on the scene and was like the hot actor of the time. And David Fincher, who I always thought was special, 
and and then just just from the power of those Polaroids, right? And the whole the whole concept, you know, the mm-hmm. seven deadly sins. This is this could be really really good. And later when it did come out, it was yeah. And and you know, I was working at Rick's at the time, and and uh, I think Moto and I were were really proud to have been associated. Oh with yeah. That. So uh, how come you? Why didn't you end up being like a lifer over there? I mean, what was the next thing you worked on? Um, so the next thing was uh, Mission Impossible. Oh, okay. And at that point, Linda had done some work initially, and then she I think she left to go work on something else, and then it was mainly Moto and I working mm-hmm. on the disguise makeups for Tom Cruise. There were two of them. One was the Russian that you see at the beginning of the movie, and the second one was the senator. Mm-hmm. And so... Rob's processes usually has designers design. He'll go and do the research. He said he would go down to Hennessy and Angles and go through all the books. He would find something that approximated what he would want. He would take that to the illustrators. They would do detailed drawings and give that to us. But Moto and I, that was, I don't know if we followed him exactly. We just used him as a springboard. And, mm-hmm. and so we had the designs and then some photographs. We pretty much stuck to the designs, <clears throat> but Moto would work on the makeups during the day, and I was working the night shift. So it was a three-month job. I didn't, I didn't have a day off, and it was really arduous. Three months and, on a night shift with no days yeah. off. Well, that was that was actually great though because I love <laughs> driving. I love driving against the traffic. Right. At night. What was the What were the hours? So I would get there probably around seven o'clock at night i would i would eat dinner i there was a as you get off uh irwindale exit to get to azusa there was a little mcdonald's i'd usually get some mcdonald's eat oh, my, yeah. my i know dinner. that mcdonald's <laughs> yeah and and then drive to the shop get there to shop and um moto would usually just be finishing up and we'd have a brief talk and just for people real quick you and i you know moto hato was a special guy oh amazing talented. Sculptor, he passed away about nine, you know eight years nine years ago, at forty seven. God, has it been that long already? He he was a gifted artist, a special human being. I miss Mono greatly. Yeah, he was amazing. I got to know him uh, well at Rob's, and so it was just always a pleasure. And so we Moto would would was was kind of acting as Rob's art director when Rob wasn't there to tell me what to kind of focus on mm-hmm. at night. I would do it. Rob would come in in the morning and assess what I've done and I'd go home and sleep and whatnot. Did that for three months. But it became really, really hard at the end because I remember the longest stretch was uh, 36 hours without oh sleep. God. Had to hurry and get these done. And it was at the tail end. So we had to get these done, these, these appliances done. So the mold makers could quickly make the mold. Art Pimentel could quickly make the mold, and his crew, Rob Freitas, came and helped at one point. So it could make it to the fly, the plane to get to the set in time to apply it. So, I mean, it was down to the wire. Oh, my so God. So didn't have the luxury of being able to sleep at that stage. And that was really hard for me because I don't have the stamina of Steve Lang. I mean, in the interview with Steve, Steve working on – you know, his movie drive and we're staying up. I couldn't do that. Right. You know, I, I, I start to break down and, and this is kind of the flaw of Rob's process is that 
he has that stamina that Steve Wang had. You know, he could stay up and work, and I didn't. Right. And so to have that kind of imposed on me, I had a hard time syncing with it. So I didn't feel like it was improving quality, and it didn't make sense to me. It's like I, I just need to go home and sleep, and I can make up the time with with fresh you know, thinking right. and hands. I was literally falling asleep. Rob, I think Rob caught me doing this. I would fall asleep with my tool in my hands, froze, my arm frozen in the air. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then I would suddenly wake up and I'd catch Rob Freitas looking at me smiling. <laughs> and it's like, that's no way to work. No. That's crazy. And, and, and Moto would stay, the same thing with Moto. Um, and it was, you know, they'd buy us food and everything, but it's like, I, I was starting to kind of see how uh, that was maybe where I was weak as an employee for Rob. I, I, I didn't like doing that. I liked 40-hour I liked uh, weeks so I could get sleep, rejuvenate, mm-hmm. and be, start fresh and anew the following week. I needed the downtime, and I think you know Rob was accustomed not doing that, just working, working, working. And he told me that, he and Art Pimentel on the Howling would just work crazy hours, and he would follow Art going back home to I think El Monte where where he lived, and he would see Art just swerving, oh my God. <laughs> barely staying on the road because they were so tired after working on the Howling, and so um, that was hard. So that's and that's why he didn't become a lifer there, <laughs> possibly, possibly, and and once. I left on 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 uh, Mission Impossible because they were kind of through, but Moto stayed to work on a couple things for a little bit longer. But then shortly thereafter, I, I moved to other shops and eventually Rick's before Rob approached me again. But I just want to say this one thing: um, Rob's process is very difficult, and it's not for everyone. But he is um, a very exhilarating art director. Mm. Um, a very uh, a powerful presence in the mm-hmm. shop and he would do things that um, were really uh, unusual so he would take you into his office that same office with the card table and he would prep you before your next sculpture and he would talk to you for like two to three hours regaling you with stories Wow. Telling you what he was thinking about this. He was visually articulate like the professors I had in school. Hmm. And I was like, this this guy's this guy's pretty amazing. He lives up to his reputation. I've never encountered anyone quite like this. That's that was the positive part of it. And and then the less positive was just the arduous grind of his process right. of enough sleep and working it and changing things over. And I'm sure Dave Smith told you things working things over and over and changing and that was hard for me so i needed a break after mission impossible and that's when i went and worked with you at alterian okay yeah and all of us briefly and then um i went on a trip with some friends to europe came back and matt rose had posted a little note on my door saying hey we saw your portfolio we like your portfolio do you want to come and interview and i went and interviewed with matt initially and and uh, I didn't had, didn't meet Rick yet, and thought it went well, and um, 
how things normally work, life throws conflict at you. Just mm-hmm. so things can't be easy. Yeah. <laughs> I got I got a call at the same time from Styles. I think his name was Styles White. He worked at Stan Winston's. And I got a call from Styles saying, Hey, would you like to come over and just meet us and just we'll just talk, have an introduction? And I went, oh, okay. You know, I hadn't heard anything from Matt yet or Rick's. So I thought, oh, okay. Um, I take that back. I did meet Rick in a follow-up interview, my first introduction to Rick, and he looked at my portfolio and told me that we were working on Men in Black, but he didn't commit to hiring me. Mm. And I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> and in that little space, I go, that's when I met Stan Winston's, and we went over and interviewed Stan Winston's and got to meet Stan, met John Rosengrant, and was in their display room, and John Rosengrant offered me work. And I wasn't prepared for that. And that's, here's the conflict. It's like, I, I, was, I was already fantasizing about going to Rick's. I thought I was on the track. Right. I just hadn't the official green light. And Rick was sounding like he wanted to hire me. He just didn't know when he was going to do it. I had to turn John Rosengrant down. Uh, it was one of, very hard in person. And it kind of seemed like a, a disrespectful thing for me to do. Mm. But I felt like I had to do it. I, I, I wasn't. I, I remember you. We tried to get you to stay at Alterian. And I went on Europe. I went to Europe. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember you being like, no, I can't do it. And it was like, we were, I, 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 oh. I, I mean, I don't remember the reason, but I remember like we were trying to get you to be like a oh. full-time person, you know, because I was just, I wanted to keep you there because you were so good. Oh, well. See, but I remember I mean, you, were, you... you were very much like, uh, you were really like, you're, I don't, you were like your own person, you know? You were like, hmm. whatever the reason was, you're like, no, I can't, you know? It's just like, this is the way it's got to be. There, huh. there wasn't any like, hmm, let me think about it. You're like, no, nah, I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. I mean, it may, it may be, uh, I mean, n- n- no criticism. It's... I just remember that, you know, it was like, kind of like you had made your decision. Yeah. And and you were just going to go. And that was it. And it was like, you know, you, you were, you were. Uh... I was kind of set. Yeah, I yeah, was set yeah. on what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted yeah. I wanted to work for Rick. Mm-hmm. I, and 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 I and I saw a path and opening, and I was pretty determined to to go there, and and so turning down Alterian, and and stands and and that was difficult, um, especially being there in Stan Winston's display room, the magic of the display room, having just shook Stan's hand, he left, and then John Roser and Grant going, well, are you would you like to work for us? <laughs> and, went, and I felt I've always felt bad about doing that to John, and Stan. But I felt like my destiny was with Rick's. Yeah, yeah. And so I went home. I said, I told John, I said, I, I, I've got to, I can't commit just yet. I've got to talk to Rick because I, he's already interviewed me twice. I need to know what they were going to do. And so I went home, immediately called Rick, talked to Rick. And he says, well, in lieu of what you just told me, you're hired on Men in Black. And so it's like. <laughs> How cool. Uh, hallelujah. <laughs> and, and it was, it was it, you know, I'm sure you can relate when you, when you finally get that, that official, you're going to work for Rick Baker, the top of the top. 
Right. I mean, I loved ADI and Rob's and everything, but you know, Rick was was the place you wanted to be. Right. And so, yeah. And then I started at Rick's on Men in Black, and uh, just remember the first day there. Oh man, I was so nervous. My skin was breaking out. I when I you know, <laughs> the humidity, I'd get red patches all over, and I was stressed, sweating. Um. Because you you know you're exposed to Matt Rose, Eddie Yang, Aaron Sims, the regulars. Yeah. Mitch Devane had started working there, and and it's like they were intimidating. Oh yeah. And then to go in the design room and and see what Carlos Wante was doing, and for those who don't know, Carlos Wante is like an extraordinary creature designer, and oh, I worked yeah. with him briefly on uh, at Rob's. But to see the aliens, which were right up his alley, was mind-blowing. And then on the table next to him were maquettes that Jordu Shell had done. They were mind-blowing. <laughs> and I really felt I shrunk a bit. <laughs> I, was like, right. I was like, this is really intimidating. And well, I was like, what do I, I, I don't think about it. Just take small steps. You're here. Don't worry about it. But when you're exposed to that level of quality, and I know you've talked about this too. Yeah, yeah. And I want to hear you or your reaction your first day too. It's And you, your first day was at the new shop, which is like, you know, Emerald City. Right. <laughs> which is even more intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> but but it was it was something. And I remember the first day at Rick, uh, Men in Black having to read the script and not knowing how to read the script and kind of faking it. And I was, it was just, it was overwhelming, but in the pe- best possible way. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah what, your, what was your kind of initial when you first worked for Rick? Well, I was really, really uh, insecure. Uh, this is, I had started. I had, that I had surprises a, me. Yeah, no, I had, a, I had a falling out with Tony at Alterian. So I was mm-hmm. like, not wasn't working and then i tried to start this digital effects company because i was getting into digital stuff yeah um, yeah and i had a little shop in pasadena and we did the uh we did the tool video remember you came yeah. and worked on the tool video for a little yeah, bit yeah. Mm-hmm. um that may have that may have been one it was during, after that was during I, rick's I, yeah that i helped you on the tool video during uh, men in black 2 Right, right. That's yeah, because that's we we had a same uh, uh, in the same building. We we had a different. We opened up a little shop there in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we had you know we had a. It was like a, a little computer room with a bunch of computers, and we were trying to get work, and that just didn't pan out. We got a couple little jobs, ah. but it didn't really pan out. And so I was like really desperately broke, ran out of money, had nothing, and then Rick uh, Bill Sturgeon's like, "Hey, you want to come and?" paint who ears for the Grinch, you know, you're way overqualified, but you know, it'd be you a certainly were f- foot in the door. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Yes. I need some work. So I started working there in the paint department. Cause I was taking over for, um, Tom Gilliland. Um, uh, cause Tom was going to go start or he was starting sideshow collectibles. So yeah. he, he was still the painter. And, um, Speaking of falling asleep, he would fall asleep like every day because he was working at night on Sideshow. I remember one time uh, he he was uh, I saw he was he was asleep like this. For those of you who can't see, it's like my head back, my mouth open. He was like <laughs> just like completely out with his mouth open. And during the day, it, yeah, during the day, during the work day, and Rick just walked wow. by. And, Rick walked by and looked at him and just shook his head and kept walking. 
Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, it was. He, Tom was just Tom was talented. He, yeah. He, well, he was. He had already at that point he had his out date, and he was just like oh, basically okay. counting down the days when he could leave. Like every day at cleanup time, he's like, he would always be like, everything's clean, but you had to wait another ten minutes. It only took you five minutes to clean, and you, you had to wait another ten minutes. He, he would always be like, we should just go. I mean, there's nothing to do. Everything's cleaned. And he was all, it was just like a constant struggle. He just wanted to get out, the, out of there every day. But I was so, so, it was so hard for me to, to, to go to work there. I was so intimidated because I'd been at Tony's at Alterian for 10 years. You know, that's wow. the only, the real, only real place shop I worked at for, it was, was for, for Tony since I started. Yeah. Like he got me, you know, he found me early on and when I just started on, on, on the blob, hired me on the blob and well hired me in some little projects in the blob. And then it was everything after that. And so I'd never really worked in another shop. And so I just, it was huge. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. The new all building the, on San Fernando. Yeah. Like all on, the, yeah. all the best people in the business, Kazu, Mitch, uh, yep. Matt, Steve Wang. And it was, yeah. it was, uh, Moto Norman Cabrera, so it was like I I really and then I was like kind of stuck in the painting department, and yeah. you know all the cool stuff was going next door right right next to me in the sculpting department, and it was really like such a <sighs> such a bummer. So I I I was like I kept to myself, you know. I knew Mitch from um, he worked on the Blob a little bit, so he would I met oh, okay. I met him because he would do sculpting at home and drop stuff off, so I kind of met him. Um, there and we kind of just clicked like i don't know mitch is friendly he's friendly to everybody yeah yeah so um he was kind of like the guy i knew there other than bill bill was really cool of course um yeah but I, but I remember like i would i would eat i would bring my lunch i would go every day at lunch i would go out by myself go eat at the park that park up the up the mm-hmm. road and mm-hmm. you know or sit in my car by myself i was completely like the loner guy Oh man! The whole the whole time I was in the paint department, really, and then um, then I got you know, Rick saw the opportunity for me to sculpt a maquette uh, for Planet of the Apes yeah. during, during the pre production phase, and once the, you know that was like my audition to sculpt, yeah, and then they moved me to sculpting. Then I was like friendly with everybody there, yeah. and then I you know got to know Matt and Mitch and uh, uh, everybody, and then then I then I was kind of like part of the team, but. Yeah, I was well, so let me tell you about like those maquettes you withdrawn. did for Penny Eight. Yeah, oh. I so I I had moved back to Utah after. Uh, see, I worked on the uh, the Grinch, and I'd moved back to Utah just prior. So I came out to L.A. to work on the Grinch. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's right. I went back after that was done, and then I got a call from Rick to come and uh, maybe work on Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. and I. I can't remember what happened. I either drove out or whatever, but I met with Rick. He showed me some of the the, the maquettes and, and, and everything that had been done so far design-wise. And he says, you know, yeah, look at these maquettes. I, I'm, I'm really impressed with what Chet Zar is doing here. Do you know Chet? And I go, yeah, I know Chet. Oh, really? And, and I was like, I, <laughs> I, I, he's a great sculptor because I worked with him at, um, at Alturian and, and, you know, and on – the Grinch, but he wasn't sculpting. I always knew what a good sculptor he was, and and you had done some beautiful maquettes. So, it was where you needed to be. It was where you had, and and so, 
I know that was probably frustrating just to be painting, but I'm so glad you got, and you know what? You really did shine on Planet of the Apes. That work you did, it was just beautiful. And, oh, and the detail work. Uh, you do detail as well as anyone. Oh, thanks. And well, I, I learned I it all from I, Mitch. Well, yeah, he's, and Mitch, <coughs> and that's, that's, that's Mitch. I mean, look at Mitch. He, he was the one where, so Moto and I were trying to work out texture on Mission Impossible for these appliances. Mm-hmm. And so we were just kind of doing the, the Henry thing and, and just kind of dabbling. It wasn't really serious skin texture. Not until I, I worked at Rick's and got exposed to Mitch's techniques, which the whole industry benefits from. Right. Did I go, oh, this is another level. Everybody, everybody does texture based on Mitch's yeah. tech, skin he, texture he, techniques now. He's like the Dick Smith of sculptors. He innovates yep. and his new way of doing things. Yep. And, and so Mitch was intimidating on top of just the regular guys. And then <laughs> Men in Black was kind of magical because that's when they brought in Kazu and Moto came on board and all these great Jose Fernandez. and I mean, it was just, it was, it was really amazing. But, um, but yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I remember discussing texture with you because I was like a super detail texture geek. Like I was so into it and you were like not a texture. You didn't like texture. You you didn't, you thought it was like tedious and you were all about form. And that actually was really important for me because, um, I really uh, working with you really got me thinking more about form and how important form is. Hmm. Um, you know, I look back at some of my old sculptures from the Alterian days, and it's like I was not thinking that way. I just wasn't huh. really thinking. It was I was it was intuitively, you know, I was doing it intuitively, but yeah. um, it wasn't until I saw you know talk to you and saw your work and realized how it's like it's all about the form. You know, texture yeah. is just this thing you kind of have to do. Like Mitch used to say, it's like washing the dishes. You got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I always got into well, it. Or, or not. I mean, at Rob Botines, we really didn't. Other than the, right. the gluttony victim, because we had to match the plaster. Right. You know, the plaster skin texture. But we didn't worry too much about it because, you know, uh, it was all about just trying to refine those forms to get the proper values necessary and ev- so every time i work on texture i feel like ah, oh, this is time i could be refining those forms right more. right but now i'm starting to appreciate it a little more because i need the texture stage to kind of help me to finish yeah yeah once you get once you once you get to that it's like i can finish it because you really literally could work on forms forever right i just don't have your ability and patience to be able to pull off the texture that you can do but it, but i see it's I see its need and its value. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just wish I I could do it better. Well, I don't. You you know you you. It serves its purpose absolutely, especially yeah. now. Hide the the resolution that's evident in and and movies and stuff and in. Right. Yeah, I wonder um, if the if the if the Rob technique would hold up with HD cameras and stuff now. I mean, I'm curious I, to see that stuff like Legend and yeah Seven and well, I don't know if if you, you guys were doing. You guys were texturing but, like crazy. But the Mission Impossible makeups, you know, I think, um, and and those were kind of hit and miss. I mean, I I think, and I've I've written this down on Facebook before, but those Mission Impossible makeups weren't in, entirely successful. Hmm. In that, when Moto and I were sculpting them, 
we had a specific lighting arrangement to help us see the forms. And they were right. always overhead lights creating certain shadows. So we based our, it was all about what shadows were being cast and to illuminate the quality of the forms. Right. And so when, but when you go on set, it's a different lighting situation. And totally. so you can't assume to bring, to be able to, to uh, negotiate with the, the, the DP to create those same kind of lighting conditions to show off your forms in the best right. possible if it, way. Yeah, if it doesn't make sense for the scene to light it that way, it's yeah. you know you can't justify it. And I think Rob Rob told me that subsequently, when I was to work on another project later on, he he told me that Seven was a success. He everything was great, but Mission Impossible, you well, know, we could do better. He says. He butted heads with the cinematographer, the, the DP. The DP wasn't willing to accommodate mm. his lighting suggestions, whereas Darius Kanji on Seven did. Well, go to, that's and, and, part of Rob's huge success, I think, is uh, the Howling and the Thing. He oh. was he was very, from what I understand, he was very involved in how they lit things. Like he knew he lit things to get the maximum reality out of them. Absolutely, you know? and he he knew he knew the value of shadows. Mm -hmm. He knew how rim lighting. He knew how to sell it. He knew how to present it. And if if this, I'm assuming, well, if there's one uh, fault that he made on Mission Is Possible was assuming he couldn't communicate these things to the direct director of photography. And because you know the DP has his he has his responsibilities and he can't change the lighting scheme just to accommodate these makeups he could try right but he didn't and so i think those makeups came across looking a little bit dead a little mm. bit flat. yeah i have to see it now 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 i want to go watch although at no fault of the applications tom flouts or margaret Becerra, more maybe on moto and i's end uh, but they just and maybe also it's that Rob was a little bit out of his element. Mm -hmm. He even acknowledged, he says, yeah, I'm, this is not what I usually do. Oh, that's interesting. Kind of makeups, yeah. So, and it was De Palma, and it was kind of a prestigious project, but but I think he did feel maybe is out of his element a little bit. They still look good, I thought, but, you know, I we did hear some criticism, Moto and I. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bummer. Oh well, <laughs> sucks when that happens. Wow. Um, okay, so uh, what did you do on Men in Black? Uh, you you did that. Did did you you do you worked with Moto on Men in Black one on that mm -hmm. that one? I forget what that alien was called. Edgar. Yeah. Well. Oh uh, yeah, first, Edgar. Yeah, the first thing uh, uh, that I worked on, uh, uh, we did. Um, Worked on some maquettes. We did some designs, maquette designs of, of Edgar. Mm -hmm. We did. Uh, I did some maquettes for the the. Remember the little guy that that was inside the big alien head, the little mm -hmm. guy operating it. Mm -hmm. I did some maquettes of that. Mm. I did some maquettes of Mikey, the first alien you see in it. That, Mikey, that's um, the one I was thinking of. Didn't yeah, you, Moto so, Moto worked on that too. No, right? Moto didn't work on that. Oh, oh. Moto and I worked on Edgar, the Edgar bug at the end. And but my main responsibility was kind of working on the character of Edgar. Oh, okay. So the scene where he stretches his skin back and you know. Yeah, that was so. His wife, yeah, Edgar, you're you're. you're 
Against that was so Ryan Peterson. That's a good example, I think, of something that is very you. That sh- that uh, oh, that sculpture so of you know you pulling it him was, pulling his face so back. <laughs> so so the idea was so I did some little maquettes of the of of Edgar's skin drooping. I did a full sized yeah. one, and then I did a maquettes of the pulling out. And and Men in Black was very bizarre because we didn't know what the tone of the movie was. You read right. it and it sounds really horrific. You know, an alien sucks the innards out of a character and then dons his skin. Right. And then what's that about? I mean, yeah, is this a that's dark. Movie? <laughs> a black movie? And 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 so it's like, huh. So I treated it very literal. It's like, okay, what do we this is so Rick the concept of the pulling back the skin I think was Rick's. Hmm. And and so but I got to help I got to kind of explore it and design it. And and that was that was kind of a blast. And I think and Kazu over Kazuhiro oversaw the construction of the silicone because he was working also on Edgar. He's working on the appliances and working out. Uh. Rick was just getting into the silicone gel-filled appliances, and right. Kazu was kind of overseeing that. So, so Kazu was exploring one angle of it. I was exploring some maquettes, and Kazu oversaw the actual uh, cat uh, of the stretched head, the the application, and all the wonderful hair team workers mm. at Rick. That's the thing about Rick's and what people, why we were so lucky to be at Rick's is that everyone was at the top of their game. Yeah. You're, you're, you're exposed to brilliance in every corner. Right. And every subsequent stage of the process flattered the preceding. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to worry about if Gino, um, Acevedo who painted that at your head was going to do a poor job. He enhanced it. Right. Or you didn't have to worry about Aaron Sims painting Mikey because he was going to flatter it even further. Right. That's the beauty of it. And, and so, and even know, in the you, mold department, you know, it's like, it didn't matter. The mold department was aces, the seaming. Yeah. Every aspect was, was top notch. Yeah. The best. Yeah. And, and you only now do I realize how much I took that for granted. Right. I mean, it's magical, Same. but it's like, I'm not exposed to that. It was a concentration of, of extreme high caliber talent and and we're porous beings and it and it comes into you and it raises it raises you as well oh yeah i got and, so that's one thing about working at rick's and i've said this before is that i got so much better as an artist after yeah. working there just from like picking just from seeing what's possible too and how far you exactly. can take a sculpture you know exactly totally and so that was just wonderful. So the Edgar and then the Edgar Bug, Carlos Wante had um, he had designed it, and Moto and I worked on some of the maquettes. Um, Jose Fernandez at one point helped us. We did a, a third scale version of it, and Jose helped us with some posing and stuff. And and then Eddie Yang was in charge of the actual full scale construction. So. Mm-hmm. What happened is that third scale bug design that Moto, Eddie, and I sculpted that Jose helped pose, that was scanned into sections. This was the first time I think it had been done in the industry, or at least at Rick's. Mm-hmm. But we sent it out to be scanned, and it was, it was uh, milled out out of foam, uh, carvable yellow foam, at the proper scale. Right. And so our jobs at that point moto eddie and i was to kind of clean those up because they still kind of had potato chip ridges the 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 grow lines were still right evident 
It wasn't like it is today. Yeah. So <clears throat> I don't know if you ever rem- – oh, you – you didn't work at the old shop, did you? The one on Flower? No. There was a little, there was one section that was above, I can't remember, it was above the phone room, but there was a little attic section. <laughs> really? Oh, hot. yeah. I remember hearing about that. <laughs> and I went up there and I had to clean all these foam parts and in a, in a hazmat suit. I was oh, getting foam all over, God. middle of the summer. It was horribly hot and uncomfortable, but it was men in black, it was Rick, so I didn't mind. And so my job was just to smooth all these parts. I smoothed all the leg parts, and 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 I I smoothed the tail and moto. You, you didn't add a layer of clay. It was more like you're just no no no. Wait, well, once we once we smoothed it, the the foam the the mold guys sprayed it with latex. Wow. And and so so once moto and I cleaned all the parts, and I think Eddie did. Uh, so it was pretty smooth, but it was still kind of porous. They would seal it with latex. And but prior to the latex, I would hit the the foam with a like a a, a cleaning brush, and just all over, and it gave it kind of a nice little texture. Oh wow! So when the latex was sprayed on top of it, it made it even better and more believable. How cool! And then and they 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 sprayed it with red tinted latex, and that was kind of the 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 preceding stage before molded being molded and then they that's how we constructed the parts for the animatronic edgar bug which was the original design ilm later in the process once the the r edgar was already built and mechanized ilm uh took it over and redesigned it and, and made gave it a different head oh no and, and, and went cg and that was like one of the first episodes of just being heartbreaking and by the politics and and whatever of having something kind of taken away, and yeah. I was actually really surprised that they would do that to Rick Baker. Right. And so I'm sure Rick was offended, rightly so. Yeah. To this do is that. this is probably the beginning of the end for him. Yeah. For something like that to happen, you know. Yeah. It it, it had to have been hard for Rick, a, a, a slight. Yeah. And so disrespectful. Yeah, so so Edgar Bug, Mikey, Edgar, Stretchface, Maquettes. I remember all of us got to do two day masks to just populate the headquarters, Men in Black headquarters. Uh, that must have been fun. <laughs> and so th- that I remember, I did a mask in ten hours, and, <laughs> and it was extreme. I was trying to impress, and and it was it was really stressful. And I realized I do not like to speed sculpt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm like I'm back to you where where it's more fun to just have time to contemplate, think, meditate over a sculpture. Right. right. Um so but you know, sometimes roughing out a sculpture quickly can produce some interesting results. You know, yeah, again. Yeah. If you don't think. If you don't think, back to the devil's advocate stuff. Right, but, uh, right. But anyway, so that's that was pretty much it for Men in Black as far as my involvement. But boy, it, you know, some beautiful work was really being done there. Oh, it was yeah. probably the pinnacle. The pinnacle. Really? That was the pinnacle? Yeah, just the scale and size of the project and Rick Baker's and, and just all the talent that was all concentrating in that one space. It yeah, was pretty right. interesting. I know, so. you know, it's funny because we think of the the glory days of makeup effects, they say, were the 80s, like the thing and, you know, that era. I, yeah. I, it's it's kind of considered like when, you know, they always say makeup effects guys are rock stars and blah, 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 but... I think it was more that era. I mean, I think of Rick's, my time at Rick's as the, the pinnacle of 
makeup effects because just because of that shop and like you said the level of of, uh workmanship you know you couldn't do crap pass crap work off there was a standard there was always enough materials there was always enough everything you had the you always got paid you got paid well yep the proper lighting proper chairs i mean everything was just like it was the way it should be you know right and so many so many other you know since even now with kind of like the uh i mean i haven't worked in the business in so long so i can't really say but i know after that experience there was um you know i'd seen situations where it's kind of like i don't know the budgets are lower the time frames were quicker there wasn't that kind of attention to detail because there couldn't be and it's just like oh man i didn't i didn't uh, uh i didn't fully appreciate it um, when I was there, although I remember during <laughs> Haunted Mansion, it, it, there was a period where there was like, n- no one really knew when it was going to start, um, hmm. but they were committed to doing it. And it was like, I think it was me, Mitch, uh, Matt, and I'm not sure if there was anyone. Was Jim else. McPherson? Because, uh, yeah, I forgot. I mean, Jim McPherson was there on, on Men in Black and stuff. And he, he Jim's stuff's great. And yeah, he was always kind of a, a presence there at Rick's as well. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah oh, he I'm was, glad he, I remember Jim. He's yeah, there, yeah. He does great stuff. Oh, yeah. He worked, I worked with him. At was he on Haunted Mansion as well? I don't think so, but it's possible. I'd have to really think about it. But, th- but during this preliminary, I remember during this preliminary phase where it was like they took us to the, the Disney archives me, Bill, Mitch, Matt, and I, I hope I'm not leaving anybody out, but I probably am. I and we went to the archives and wow. got to go and look through all their books and check out books of Haunted Mansion, fo- color photocopies of all the original Haunted Mansion artwork to, oh. to, to use as inspiration and brought them back. And we had these folders of all the original art, like not the original art, but fo- color copies of everything in the Haunted Mansion. And... um Basically, you know, I don't know where Rick was, but he wasn't around. It's like it hadn't fully started, but Bill was like, you know, Rick just wants you to come up with concepts with no direction as to which characters. So we had to kind of just like talk, you know, talk amongst ourselves like, you know, what do you what should we do? And we kind of started assigning ourselves characters we wanted to do. We just started doing maquettes with no oversight. And it was like this for weeks. And I remember thinking... You know, I actually told Mitch, I'm like, this is, you know, never going to happen again <laughs> to where you could just do whatever you want. There wasn't even like it, direction to stick to the Haunted Mansion uh, designs or anything. It was wow. It was totally like whatever, just kind of make stuff. And it was so much fun to just I remember Mitch, oh, wow. Mitch was a little bit like almost perturbed because he didn't have any, he didn't have any direction. He's kind of like, what, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here? So he kind of, you know, he figured out some stuff to do, but, uh, you know, Mitch, he's more of a, uh, he's very organized and yeah. process yeah. oriented. Whereas I'm a little more, you know, crazy, like, free yeah, form. whatever. Yeah. yeah. You know, free form. Yeah, yeah. But I, I remember at that point going, you know, like fully appreciating it and going, you know, it's probably never going to happen again. <laughs> yeah. This is a very rare situation. See, it, isn't that great that you did? You appreciated yeah. the moment. <laughs> I wish, I just wish I had more of those moments. I, I, I took things for granted. 
I really did. But that, oh, that stuff. Yeah, you did some uh, pretty incredible mummy, like the mummies of Guanajuato. Yeah, for those that, yeah. Those were yeah, so that, fun. I loved, I loved those. What you did, Chad. Those oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I, you know, I always enjoyed. Those were kind of, uh, not, not important characters in that film. They were just like these, you know, this one scene of zombies. You know, zombies. You can get away with just about anything with zombies, and it'll look pretty good. But, um, I still sculpted them like, you know, they were all going to have close-ups and totally got into it. And I, and I, and I, uh, I kind of enjoyed, I, I thinking about it, I kind of, um, I enjoyed, I, I would often get put on like background characters and secondary characters. I didn't do a lot of like primary characters. I mean, I, I did it Tony's, you know, doing dark man and this and that swamp thing and stuff. But, you know, when I worked at Rick's, it was like, I was usually a good kind of like a second string guy in a way like because they already had their hierarchy established it was matt mitch yeah. kazu these were the three top guys they get the, the main yeah. things but i was so totally happy to just do chimp background masks or uh those zombies for haunted mansion it's like there's kind of less pressure and less oversight because you're not getting oh, you yeah. know you don't have to get approvals on everything for production because they're just in the background so you can kind of like you know, the pressure's off and you can just do what you want and no one really cares. <laughs> so as yeah. much as I, I didn't get the screen time, I didn't really care about that. It was more about the process of making them. And, and, and I, you know, so it was more fun for me to, to, to be able to do what I want rather than to, you know, work on one of the main chimp makeups and have, you know, yeah. the McDonald's people come through and <laughs> check to make sure it's going to make a good Happy Meal toy and all that stuff. Oh, but Chet, it shows in your work. I mean, that that um, that orangutan sculpture you did, um, some of those makeups or oh, masks thanks. were Planet of the Apes or just, uh, that was texture on a, a, a kind of another level. Oh, and, and you applied it to those, those uh, yeah, those uh, cadavers in Haunted ah, Mansion. They were so, so fun. It shows you had fun. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I did yeah. a series of paintings for a show. Um, based on those fo photos that Bill had given me from the zombies that, you know, we took for just, you know, you take pictures of when you finish the sculpture, first thing you do is you get photos for your portfolio yeah, uh, or, and for the shop's record. Um, he gave me after the shop had closed and everything, he gave me, um, pictures for portfolio pictures, just cause Bill's a great guy and does that sort of thing. And, yeah, um, that's yeah, and they were such cool pictures. They were all like had this real harsh light over them, and they had a black background. I'm like, these would make amazing paintings. So I did a whole series of these little paintings based on those sculptures I did. It was like they were my photo reference because you never you you never saw them really. They weren't distinctive enough to be like, oh, you're ripping something off you did for a movie. They were just skeletal, corpse like guys, you know. I wish you could have got those like scanned or something and just oh, printed out. Oh, that would be so cool. I got a um, I got a Planet of the one of the Planet of the Apes full size maquettes in my really in my studio. Yeah, because uh, remember when all that stuff was being auctioned off at Rick's? Yeah, there was that big auctions. Um, Aaron Kruger, Mikash, mm -hmm. do you know her? She's a I I know of her. Yeah, yeah she, definitely. She's uh she bought a bunch of 
the maquettes and and props from Planet of the Apes, the clay sculptures, and had them scanned oh. for posterity, and then gave the sculptures to the artists. Oh, like what an amazing thing to do! That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. so cool. She's awesome. I I, I met her um, at Beekler's, one of my first jobs. Really? Yeah, she she came and picked me up and drove me to the airport on my way to Italy. <laughs> to go to, 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 to what, what did you work on at Beekler's? Uh, um, cellar dweller. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this yeah. movie called Transformations that's so bad that nobody knows it, and something called Pulse Pounders, which was like a Lovecraft anthology. Mm. It was all Full Moon or um, whatever Charlie Band films, but mm-hmm. that's where Mitch got his start. Was yep. Beekler's. Hey, no. Yeah, and and uh, you know, uh, Beekler's like a, in a way is like Roger Corman. Mm-hmm. He gave a lot of people a start, and, totally. And everyone's very appreciative and 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 res- and respect him. He's yeah. He, was, he seems like he was very much a liked and respected person. Yeah, he he was uh, um, as a human being. Yeah, you know, totally as a decent human being. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, when he died not long ago, another another one we lost. The uh, there was a. Everyone, there was an outpouring of what a great guy he was. He really gave a lot of people their start. And, um, you know, he got a lot of, uh, back in the day, there was always the, the trash talking about the stuff because, yeah. you know, he was doing stuff for 50 bucks in a day. You know, he was doing yeah. like the lowest low budget stuff. But, you know, that's some of that stuff's kind of iconic to, especially to people that grew up on ghoulies and stuff like that, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're at over two hours and, um, um, uh, I, uh, full disclosure, I, I, I edited a little section of this podcast out where I asked Ryan if you would, if we could do a part two, so we don't, cause there's so much more I want to talk to him about. And you said, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. I'd love <laughs> so love why it. don't we, uh, uh, stop for now and then we'll continue on with the rest of your career on the part two episode. If you're cool with that. Very cool. I'd love to. That'd yeah, be, that sounds great. Yeah, because this is there's it's just a pleasure. Too, there's just too much good stuff. I don't. I don't. Yeah. Want, I don't want to rush this. And uh, okay, I have so many more questions. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I love your questions. So. Oh, no, this sounds good, Chad. Excellent, excellent. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. And if you want to join the uh, the uh, Dark Art Society Patreon, it's Patreon.com/slash/DarkArtSociety, and you can join for as little as a dollar a month and all that business. And I guess. Uh, I'll say goodbye to you, but I'll be talking to you again, and you know, this week, hopefully, or Monday or something. And uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll do part two. This is the first time we've done okay. it this way. So, say Wonderful. say goodbye to everybody. Right. Go- goodbye, everybody. See, ya. See you soon. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.